Man, this is a treat. I'm so happy we get to sit down and have a chat today. Thank you, Ian. The last two days, we've done a lot of deep work. Mm -hmm. We had our uh, session here in the loft where we sit now. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you. And then yesterday, an all-day ceremonial event at our friend uh, Callan Payton's land. Yep. And man, I got to say, when I woke up today, I'm like, I don't know if I can record a podcast today. <laughs> it's like the energy over the past few days has yeah. been incredible. So it's, a, it's an honor to have you here in Austin, honor to have you in our home. And I, I'm really looking forward to learning more about you and your life. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. So what's it been like to be here in Texas? Texas? Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me say thank you for, you know, receiving me twice now in your humble space. Very powerful, you know. And uh, Texas, I have to say thanks to the land of Texas. Uh, I'm a, a naturalist, you know. So anytime I'm traveling, I observe nature. I listen to nature. First time I travel through Texas, I said, I think uh, this place just look like uh, where I'm coming from, my lands. The heat, nature, the plants, how everything is, the people, you know. I'm like, I think uh, at some point we're going to have to do something in Texas. And uh, since 2021, so we've been trying to, you know, set up things in Houston. And uh, we have a, our local temple over there for, you know, Kemetic spirituality and Dogon wisdom and all of that. And then after that, we managed to set uh, our healing house, Ancasa Natural Healing over there as well. And I'm like, let me travel to Austin and see what's happening in Austin because it's not that far. And then there was an event happening. So I decided to come for a week to that event, uh, Medicine Festival. And I'm like, I like this place. I love this place. It treats everything that is kind of in my composition as, uh, you know, welcoming and all of that. So I'm like, I feel welcoming in this place. Maybe this is why I'm back here. But I have to say thanks to uh, your wife, you know, uh, Alison, you know, a very good warrior spirit. Oh, you know, spiritual warrior, I meant to say. She did the best that she could do to really get me here so that uh, other spirits can get to benefit from me and uh, so that I can get to learn from uh, all of you as well over here. And I learned a lot. Cool. The last two days, I've been learning a lot. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. Well, when Allison had you on her podcast, Ceremony Circle, she was more excited than I've ever seen her after an interview. And you guys did it on Zoom. Yes. And me, personally, I find Zoom interviews just a little less enthralling than sharing space with someone in person. That's right. But even her recording with you on Zoom, I mean, she was lit up for like a week afterward. Wow. And she's interviewed some brilliant 
people. Um, and I'll ask her how it goes. Oh, it's great. They were awesome, you know, and she's happy. And then it's just kind of, we forget about it, you know, but with yours, there was something about it. She was just floored um, to the point that I, I've never really listened to a whole episode of her podcast. And I listened to the one featuring you and I thought, okay, I get it. So when we found out you were, you know, willing to come here, we were, we were very excited. I'm very happy yeah. to be here. It's been it's been cool. And your team, shout out to your team. Everyone you. everyone you roll with is also just very high vibe and beautiful. And yeah. um, there's a sacredness to the way you guys carry yourselves, which yeah. is really yeah, I mean, very appreciated. Uh, nowadays, I think that's what's missing, you know, around our planet. You know, we're missing that concept of... Uh, uh, unity and community. I think that's what we're missing, you know, for any achievements. You know, you need to have people where there's, uh, you know, respect, you know, for whatever you're doing, you know. And the uh, respect for whatever we're trying to achieve is actually what comes to, you know, solidify our, you know, our relationship and then uh, give us the sense of uh, we're fighting for something. And the small, you know, frustration and distractions and all of that don't really come to, you know, take us, you know, away from what we're really trying to do. And then uh, that dedication is uh, what I kind of appreciate in uh, you guys. You know, we've been working with me and all of that. You know, I really appreciate that. You You also have a very multicultural team. Yeah, everyone's from all over. Like I don't know, he was from Colombia. Yeah, I was trying to place his accent yesterday. Yeah. I'm like, I can't figure out where he's from. And I just didn't get a chance to ask him, you know. But yeah. you got little light workers from all over the world doing this Avengers, you know, super team kind of situation. It's, that's it's very that's cool. The word, you know, Avengers, because I think that's how I look uh, at our team. When our ancestors decided to. Uh, bring this knowledge, you know, our wisdom that we've been preserving out. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the mission wasn't to just give it to a specific, you know, group of people. You know how there's, you know, those kind of racist way of uh, viewing things and all of that and all of that to the point where, you know, humanity was so far away from reality to the point where we even end up putting race in culture. I just don't understand how human we manage to do that. Culture is just a way of life. And a, a way of life, anyone can learn to live, you know, certain way. And then uh, when we came, we told everybody, this is a way of life of the Dogons. You know, you want to learn and live like the Dogons, no problem. You're welcome. Our philosophy, our ideologies, our belief, our, you know, the way we approach existence and all of that, you want to do that, no problem. So, that kind of opened the gates for uh, our mission around the world, you know, to kind of reach everyone. We have all kind of, uh, you know, uh, faces in, uh, I don't want to say race, but we have all kind of faces. <laughs> <laughs> kind of I like faces that, different in, uh, faces. Different that's faces. A good, that's a good way know. to put it. Yeah. Well, that's how I think of it too. You know, people talk about, and I, you know, obviously I understand there are, different uh, types of human beings around yeah. the planet, but I've never thought there are more than one race. That's Just the way I was raised, there's there's one human race and then yeah. people look different and have different cultures based on their geographic origin, right, and their history, yeah. but that's right. that's I'm, I'm very much on board with that. Yeah. Uh, for those that are unfamiliar with 
the Dogon culture and and you and your work and your lineage. Give us a bit of background because this was new to me. Allison knew about the Dogon culture mm-hmm. and was very excited to yeah. um, meet you and get connected. But she's the first person that I ever heard uh, talk of yeah. of you and your people. So give us a bit of background, like on your life and and what the Dogon culture is, where where you guys come from, and so on. Honestly, I didn't know. I think even in our culture back home, most of the people, all of our dignitaries and all of our royalties and, you know, temple caretakers and wisdom keepers and all of that, we didn't even know that we are being studied, you know, by the West. We didn't even know that. But somehow, you know, we see people traveling to our lands, you know, uh, looking different, you know, like, we don't know them. They just happen to come. We hear there's a village here. There's community here. We just come. You know, they come, they live with us. We share food. You know, our people are very us. We really, really like are very us. We receive you. We don't know you. We receive you. Why? Because in our culture, we feel like uh, a stranger coming to your house, a guest coming to your house, someone you don't know coming to your place is almost like the divine world visiting you. It's like the God, you know, sending someone to come visit you, to come check on you. That's how we view things. So around uh, 1940s, 60s, you know, there was these French uh, people who traveled to our lands, you know, just like, uh, you know, travel. So we thought they were just coming for, you know, same thing, observe, leave, share our stuff. But somehow they end up coming back to France, going back to France and then writing about us. Because somehow, from uh, discussions, they found out, you know, what we've been hiding and why we've been hiding and what we have and how powerful what we have that we're hiding is. In terms of knowledge or resources? In terms of uh, knowledge and in terms of wisdom. Ah, okay. You know, in terms of uh, archives, you know, and all of that. So we have a lot that, you know, we've been hiding and then it's been hiding, you know, simply through intense initiation process, rite of passage process and all of that. So meaning they found out that they cannot really have access to what we have if they are not initiated, if they don't go through the rite of passage, which is very difficult. You know, I will not advise, you know, someone (laughs) from the West to just get up and be like, I'm going to be initiated by the Dogon, it's a very, very, very challenging, you know. So they went back and wrote about everything that we have. So from there, the Dogon, you know, became uh, the focus of uh, some of the studies in uh, anthropology and history and then all of that, astrology as well. Yeah, we are a culture that is uh, rooted in uh, the Nile Valley. Our people, our ancestors, you know, migrated, you know, after a few years, you know, before the fall of uh, the walls of Misra, the temples in the Nile Valley. So, yeah, we migrated, our ancestors migrated and then uh, somehow found a way to establish or resettle around, you know, West Africa, you know, and a way of uh, protecting themselves from, uh, you know, the invaders and all of that. So those who were invading our people, you know, were invading, you know, Nile Valley did not really have a, a way of crossing the desert because it was too hard for them. And then it's almost like, you know, they can just kind of, you know, disappear too. 
try to cross that because it's hard. It's not easy for the people coming to, you know, challenges. So then uh, we end up establishing, you know, resettling around West Africa. And uh, at that moment, we didn't have the colonial countries that we have today. Where, like, you talk about Mali, the Dogon in Mali, the Dogon, the Dagbam in Ghana, the Dogbam in Togo, the Dogon in Agurumachi in Benin, in Burkina, in Chad, and all of that. So those countries did not exist. It was just like one big piece of land. You know, we're talking about uh, 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, you know, uh, colonization has not really, you know, been uh, conceived to even think about, you know, being born and then uh, invade other people. So then uh, we decided it was so simple for our ancestors to settle there because they have time now to resettle and then uh, restart everything, you know, reproduce that same culture. But then the wise men would be like, no, we don't want to rebuild the same gigantic culture that we built before. Because that's actually what attracts the, you know, the envy of uh, the other groups of people to feel like they need to invade our temples in Nile Valley. So at this point, just let us build small structures, you know, hide over here. It's hard to live here. You know, it rains maybe, you know, five times a year. Really? Yeah, our lands wow. are so, you know, our lands are so dry. You know, we live in Savannah. The desert, you know, Sahara desert and us, we're not really far. So that was, a, you know, a way of uh, protecting ourselves, you know, through, I mean, geographically, you know, using the geography to kind of protect ourselves. So then we were able to, you know, they were able to restart everything and all of that. But, you know, at a minimum, you know, exposure. They didn't want to expose themselves, maintaining, still maintaining all of the, you know, uh, project and researches and discoveries and all, everything continued. They didn't stop. You know, everything that was uh, happening in the Nile Valley, you know, they continued doing everything. And uh, normally when people go in the in Egypt and then they look at the land and then they go in and then they, saw, they see the temples and then they, the temples for us, our ancestors, at some point in time, were called mystery schools because that's uh, you enter a temple to learn the universe, meaning like those were like the real universities. You know, like you go in the temple, you know, you put yourself in some discipline, some, you know, purity and then some minds to be able to discover research, discover things. So then uh, we have to do the same thing. But this time, the temple, we will not build big temples. But we will build, we didn't even build, we will use nature. What nature already built, then we will use that. And then uh, every every year, uh, from the age of uh, 8 to 14, young children are sent in the bush within that, you know, designated place to kind of become like the natural temple, you know, where we didn't build anything, nature already built it for those children to learn how to, you know, become, you know, adults, young adults, and then become, you know, useful in the society and all of that. So that's how our history went. And then we end up settling around, you know, West Africa. But now, with uh, colonization kind of happening, then, uh, you know, when the conference in Berlin happening, happening in the 1800s, uh, they decided those countries, European countries, decided to split Africa, you know, and all of that. So they end up splitting Africa in the way that 
they even split, you know, our culture. Where like the borders that they set up, they didn't take into consideration that we live in tribes. We live in groups of, uh, you know, uh, people. They didn't take into consideration those things. So today you may have a Dogon that is from Mali and then another Dogon that's from Burkina Faso as a citizen of Burkina Faso and a citizen from Mali or a Dogon in uh, Benin who is also like a citizen of Benin different from the Dogon in uh, uh, Togo who is like a citizen of Togo. But somehow we all are the same, the same route all the way to Nile Valley. Wow. So there's been this, the colonization kind of created an artificial grid. Yes. Of a su- they superimposed a map, they imposed the map on top of the native peoples who already had their own maps going that maybe weren't even as clearly defined. Yeah. Or like groups Naturally. of tribes that live in different places according to the land calling the land. them there. Exactly. Right? I mean, we used to live, the, wow. the border, the natural borders were used. You know, when uh, we live, like the indigenous Africa uh, lived, you know, according to the natural borders, you know, because a river can be the natural border between two groups of people. You know, a chain of uh, hills can be like a natural border between two groups of people. You know, the forest can be like uh, something like that too. So, yeah, we live, you know, in that way where we respected the natural borders. And we know that you don't cross to go hunt without the permission of the other group of people, or you don't cross to go fish without the permission of the other group of people, you know. So with the colonization, which is, that's what's bad about colonization. That's what kind of, you know, the part where colonization is kind of evil because it kind of uh, separates you from your nature. It takes everything away from you, you know, and then that's kind of the kind of, uh, you know, uh, situation we're in right now at some point. And many people went through that too, you know, many groups of people. But somehow, because of us having a new system of functioning, that is not the old system known to all of the civilizations and all of that, then uh, that intelligence of creating a new system of preservation of wisdom and knowledge uh, kind of help us, you know, to continue to exist up until today where they decide to send us out, you know, to go and then talk about ourselves instead of a, you know, French professor coming and talking about the Dogon, you know, the Dogon children can learn French, can learn English, and then go talk about the Dogon themselves. Wow. What was your childhood like? Did you grow up in remote areas or were you living in a city? What was, what was happening when you were a kid? Yeah, I was, uh, I get that question a lot, but I will just say something that is so simple. My childhood actually prepared me for this that I'm doing today. And uh, I look at all of the suffering, uh, all of the struggles, all of the challenges coming from, you know, nature, you know, family stuff and all of that, family dramas and everything, all of that, society, you know, and everything. I look at all of those things and then uh, saw myself, you know, in uh, some type of initiation, kind of uh, preparing me for whatever I'm doing today. And uh, honestly, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. It was a childhood where you don't know what your lunch is going to be, uh, even if that lunch is going to happen. 
you know. It would be better to sleep, you know, uh, with that food at night. But it's difficult to go through the day, throughout the day with that food. So lunch ended up becoming like the most important meal for, you know, us when we're grown up. You know, and I grew up with my grandmothers, you know. I grew up with my grandmothers. Both of my grandmothers are healers, you know, deep connected healers and highly gifted clairvoyants, uh, both of them. So I grew up with them. And uh, the time where you don't have food, you know, grandmother just look at you and then you look into her eyes and you know the message is that, you know, lunch is not going to happen. And next thing you know what to do. You know, I was going in the bush uh, just to get like mushrooms or even go to other people's, you know, farms. And then uh, after the harvest, whatever was uh, on the ground, you know, I'll pick it up. You know, put it together and come home and then present to my grandmother and be like, hey, I got some. And she will make it, you know. Uh, I think uh, I ate an egg, chicken egg. I ate an egg and feel like, wow, I just ate an egg. Wow. (laughs) You see, that's like the thing, right? To even eat an egg. I'm like, wow, I just ate an egg. Wow. Wow. My grandma cooked an egg for me today. And that was like when I was, uh, I think, six or seven. And it wasn't even like uh, an egg that was like uh, a good egg. That's the thing. When enough, it's like the chicken, you know, kind of cover the, the eggs and then few eggs, arches, and then few didn't get to arch. And then, uh, you know, whatever is there, oh, we can cook it. Instead of throwing away, we can cook it. And then, yeah, and then uh, I got an egg, a whole egg to eat by myself. So that was like big for me. That was like, uh, you know, maybe over here, that would be like offering a child like an iPhone or offering your child an iPad and, you know, a video game. That was like big for me then. And uh, I hunted a lot, hunted rats, you know, fish, just for lunch, you know, just for lunch. And uh, it kind of, you know, prepared me, if I can say that, because even managing today, Talking about, you know, how even like uh, I'm uh, leading this mission, this, you know, work that I'm doing, the way I'm conducting it uh, is because of everything I went through, you know, when being like a child. But I don't think anyone will see me today and think like, uh, you know, an egg was like a gold for me, you know. So, yeah, that the childhood wasn't easy, but I don't look at it and make it be like a, a situation of trauma for me. I actually advise people, you know, even when people get readings from me or, you know, counsel and all of that, I tell them, you know, I always repeat, whatever happened in your childhood, use it. There's a reason why nature allow it to happen. There's a reason why life allow it to happen. It might not be bad, it might not be good, but somehow there's a reason. But use it and then make that become the foundation, the very foundation of uh, how you will want to become in life and then stand on it. Make it become the podium that you will stand on to be able to, you know, achieve something. And one good thing is like, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want my children to live that life. But somehow I will want, you know, uh, myself not to forget that I was here before getting to be here. And then from that, that's like a good lesson 
and then he ended up becoming like the foundation, the motivation that allowed me to, you know, uh, move forward. Some people can look, can go through something like that. Maybe half of that, you know, through their childhood and feel like uh, it's a trauma. But I'm not going to call it a, a trauma. It's not a tra- dramatic for, thing for me. I learned how to look at it. And then uh, initiation built me to kind of uh, see any suffering, any type of suffering, any type of challenge as uh, the foundation of achieving something big. Because with that challenge, with that suffering, it's going to be difficult for a human being to achieve stuff. You know, we see it in nature and then we just have to copy that. Have you heard about the benefits of colloidal silver, but you're still not sure if it's safe and effective? We love that term, safe and effective, right? It's funny to even say that. Well, this actually is safe and effective. So listen up while I drop some science on you. The fact is, silver had widespread use in hospitals before the advent of antibiotics in the early 1900s, and it's still used in hospitals today. But thankfully, here in the 21st century, the wizards over at Silver Biotics have harnessed the power of science to produce the best colloidal silver on the market. It's called Silversol. Now, what makes Silversol so different, you might ask? Well, number one, it's high-tech. Silver Biotics was the first to patent a metallic nanoparticle with a silver oxide coating. So instead of having a one-and-done effect, these tiny little guys in your body work continuously. And number two, it's more bioavailable. Silversol doesn't get neutralized like the other forms of silver. That means you can take less than other brands and get a better effect. Number three, it's extremely safe. Silversol's been through over 30 safety studies. And these studies show that Silversol leaves the body within 36 hours. So while other products are metabolized and can cause wacky effects like turning your skin blue, Silversol gets the job done and then clears out of your system. Okay, science class is over. If you're ready to hook it up, here's what you do. Check out all of the amazing products at silverbiotics.com and use the code LUKE to save a fat 30%. And for extra credit, you can go ahead and check out the third-party lab results on their website. I love this company's transparency. It gives me a high level of confidence to recommend them and use these products myself, which I do on a daily basis, especially the toothpaste, by the way. Love it. Again, that's silverbiotics.com. Punch in the code LUKE at checkout and save 30% off your order. You mentioned your grandmother's being uh, wise uh, initiates. And um, from what I understand, your father was a really renowned Dogon priest and elder. What was that like for you as a kid? Uh, he was traveling a lot. If I may say that, the only time we got to spend one whole year with uh, our father, where he's not traveling abroad, he's not traveling for his mission, for his work, and we got to see him, spend time with him, like a whole year, where you wake up and then your father is at home. And all of that was uh, 2007. And 2008, he transitioned. And that's when he moved, because he moved from America to settle back home in Africa, in Burkina Faso, and in 2006, end of 2006. So 2007, we had him. And then by July 2008, you know, he transitioned. So 
that question is uh, one of the other situation, you know, over here in the West. You know, my father wasn't around. That become like a reason why I'm failing. My father wasn't around. That become the reason why I shouldn't be better than, you know, my father better than, you know, myself. But we grown up in uh, Africa, we didn't have that privilege. You just want to be, you know, better than your father, no matter what. Even if he was around, you still want to be better than him. He's not around, you still want to be better than him. He's good parents, good father, you still want to be better than him. He's a, you know, so-so father, you still want to be better than him. At the end of the day, the foundation of the education is uh, looking forward. They're using the, you know, past to kind of, you know, build, you know, whatever you want to achieve, you know, ahead of you. And uh, we have a saying that, you know, to build a new rope, you have to look at the old one. And then uh, looking at the old ropes, you know, we learn how to build like the new ropes and all of that. And, uh, you know, he wasn't around, he was traveling a lot. Yeah, none of us really grew up, you know, having him like, uh, you know, and that's happened with me too now. I'm tra- I have to travel a lot. You know, I have to travel a lot and, uh, you know, leave my home and then just keep traveling. But at the same time, you know, I'm trying to learn from my father's situation and then uh, create some balance where like, you know, I have uh, three months, you know, six months, I can just stay home and then spend time with, uh, you know, family and all of that. And, you know, which allow me to be learning, to continue learning as well, because elders want us to still be there and learning. So it allowed me to do that. Yeah, so it was uh, amazing how I end up, you know, uh, standing or trying to fit my father's shoe because uh, I look at the way he even educated me and the way he guided me. And uh, what people don't know about me is that uh, once the decision was made by our tribe to send her to school and all of that, colonial school to learn, the European ways of doing things or Western ways of doing things. I was good at it. You know, because everything they were teaching was too easy. Already grown, I'm going through, you know, hardship that's not even like, you know, you have to figure out things to go in the bush, in the river, set up traps, you know, to get like a rat and all, you know, to have a big, you know, you know, intelligence to be able to do that, you know, kind of calculate everything. So I was good at school and I'm an accountant. I'm a graduate in accounting. Oh, really? Yeah, but that's what people will not know about me. Like, I'm a graduate of accounting, like university, you know, accounting. But once my father passed away, I saw it be like, when he guided me to do accounting, I love it. You know, I'm like, yes, I love, you know, the challenge of the numbers and, you know, all of that. And uh, after that, he's like, stop. If you finish accounting now, go study some literature. I'm like, whoa, I love letters, I love numbers. Literature would be like dealing with letters and all of that, you know. So I did that, you know. I did when I studied, you know, some, you know, literature and everything and all of that. So I saw him already guiding me and making sure, like, you know, even if anything happened to him, there's going to be someone to stand where he was standing. So even that makes him like a great father that I have to honor today. You know, I have to honor today. I have to respect him for that because even though he wasn't 100%, you know, 
of the time with us, but somehow he managed to guide, to guide, you know, our life in the way that, uh, you know, we end up making it to Eastport. At what point were you ordained to carry on his work? Uh, at the age of, uh, 12, I was, uh, called in front of an elder and that was in Togo. So that's where my mom is from. My father is from Burkina Faso. My mom is from Togo. Uh, that elder was the first one to tell my uncles that this boy, whatever you want this boy to achieve, his uh, family has a bigger mission for him that he's going to achieve. He was going to become a priest. And everybody's like, what do you mean he's going to become a priest? You know, he's a, we want him to go to school and become, you know, a doctor, you know, become a, a minister of the country, politician, whatever they wanted me to become. He's like, well, I think I'm a doctor, but just a natural doctor, you know, doctor dealing with nature, using nature. Uh, from there, me, myself, I started kind of thinking at the age of 12, I started thinking like, oh, what does that mean to be a priest? That's the amazing, like being born in a lineage of priesthood, I have to question like, what's that about? What's that like? You know, and uh, when my father passed away in uh, 2008, three months after he passed away, that's when I was uh, called by the elders in the bush. Your father passed away. He was in a mission. He didn't finish the mission. Do you know what he was doing? Like, yeah, I follow him. I learn. Can you do what he was doing? I'm like, uh, I don't think I'm going to do that. That's his life. He's like, uh, well, you're the next one. I'm like, what do you mean I'm the next one? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can't just wake up and then uh, be the next one into something, you know. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? He's like, well, that's what the divination is saying. Like, what? Yeah, so three months later, after he passed away, three months after he passed away, I got, you know, ordained, you know, now you're standing there. And then I think uh, six months later, I got my visa coming to America for the first time. Wow. Yeah. And is the foundation of carrying on his work, sharing the wisdom of the Dogon culture at large in the world? I mean, is that, is that kind of the core mission, this information that has been held close to the chest of your peoples for yeah. thousands of years yep. with good reason? Yes. And then the elders, through their various means, determined, okay, now the world needs this. Yep. this teaching and it's on you to bring it out. To bring that. And, uh, wow. you know, I think that's what I'm saying, like uh, your birth already decides how your life will be. And uh, most of the time when we, we grow up, we end up allowing, you know, life, challenges, like the challenges in life, we end up allowing them to settle the distrust, settle the lack of confidence or low self-esteem within, and then we end up feeling the 
challenge of life. And then we feel like life is too heavy and life does not like us. But, uh, I did, I'm happy I didn't go that way. And I'm happy I went in the way that like, uh, life, you bring me challenge. I'm going to hold the horns of those challenge. And then I show you that I can go through when the mission started. It was, it's a long, long, long mission, a mission that's very old. When you look at the Nile Valley and everything that, you know, happening this, this, with the civilization Nile Valley, everything they build and they achieve and the enlightenment, the awareness and power and, and all of that. Uh, the same thing, missions were sent then across the world. You know, when you see, you look at the pyramids around the world that you see, you look at the big structures that you see around the world. We look at those structures as uh, or portals, you know, like gates, the gate of the gates. So, you know, between the earth and then the rest of the celestial system and bodies and all of that. So the, the mission of the mystery schools then in the Nile Valley was to set up those portals everywhere that, you know, was uh, identified to be uh, good, to kind of create that connection with uh, the rest of the celestial bodies. So that was then. So every other group of people benefited from uh, that culture of uh, the Pharaoh giving the order for people to travel and share and help build those mystery places and, you know, mysterious, you know, things and all of that to see what manifestation will happen. So those kind of mission was uh, what originally we call the Exodus Army. The Exodus Army is about, you know, taking that knowledge, that wisdom, that was, uh, if I have to translate, I would translate it into like Exodus Army, you know. So it's taking that achievements, those achievements, and then get, taking it to other people and then allowing other people to benefit from it. Because, you know, one power benefiting from uh, a knowledge cannot benefit the whole universe. That creates like a big imbalance in human on earth and then in our humanity and all of that. You know, today we have a G20, G7, G this and all of that and the other ones don't matter. The other countries don't matter and all of that. And then we at the same time trying to say that we want poverty to finish, we want peace and all of that. So we cannot accept, we cannot, you know, gain peace if uh, we haven't given the means to the other people to rise up and then hold, you know, something, you know, in their hand that allow them to feel like they count, you know, because that's actually what creates the concept of revolution, you know, in people. Because I want to be like you, but you're not allowing me to be like you. So what can I do? Uh, well, I will try to see your weaknesses and destroy you first before I can get to be like you. You know, or maybe we all can be at the same, you know, so that's like a human thing, you know. So the Pharaoh didn't want that. The Pharaoh saw that like, you know, it was better to send everything to everyone, everybody to benefit from it. And then he traveled around China, Australia, everywhere he traveled. South America, he traveled. Those archives are still, you know, in uh, the temples, how the mission were organized. So in this new area, the prophecy around the 50s was that uh, everything we've been preserving can be lost. 
and we it's needed to be invested or reinvested. It needed to be shared. It needed to travel again, meaning they were even seeing it as a, another migration that would be coming on us, you know, on our people. And, you know, as time goes, they keep, you know, checking and then seeing what's going to happen. To find out that, you know, a few years ago, 30 years ago, to find out that it's not going to be us as a, a group of people migrating, but we're going to have to allow our knowledge to migrate. We're going to have to allow the wisdom to migrate. And then uh, that's the only way we can protect it. We can invest it in people and then protect it and preserve it. Otherwise, if we don't allow it to migrate, then uh, the forces that are coming are not going to be like the forces that we were running away from before we settled in around the desert. Those forces, just a button, press someone to press a button and then uh, a whole village can be destroyed. And that's like a whole, a big chunk of, uh, you know, wisdom and knowledge that's kind of taken away. And as I'm talking now, today, as I'm talking, you know, in Mali, in Burkina, in Chad, in Niger, where all of those original settlement kind of, you know, happen, everybody's struggling. Everybody has to run away from their villages because there's terrorist activities where they find gold, they find diamond, uranium, and all of that. And then the superpower countries are then are digging. And if you don't leave, yeah, you are kind of dead, you know. So now all of the villages have to leave. A lot of people, you, you can check on the news and everything. People have to run away from their villages and all that so that they can exploit the, the land and take those natural resources and everything. And then that's actually what they were saying. They were projecting like it's going to happen. And uh, lucky enough, you know, 30 years ago, you know, the mission already started. And then now we have uh, temples in uh, uh, England. We have temples in uh, uh, Canada. We have temples in America. You know, we, have, we still have temples around Africa there that, you know, we maintain in the cities. But our temple life in the city is very complicated. The temple life in the village, in the bush, is the best, you know. But we still also trying to buy lands, you know, buy some, you know, important lands and original lands and all of that to try to kind of, uh, you know, restore, rebuild the walls, you know, rebuild those uh, temples and all of that. So but that's how that mission kind of started. Wow. Doing it wow, it's cool. It's, it's yeah. interesting, the aspect of sharing this ancient wisdom with the intention of all of humanity benefiting yeah. from that and also serving as an act of preservation for the for the wisdom because if it just stays within yeah. these various tribal peoples in these various areas it's going to be squashed out by the imperialism easy coming for the resources and creating all of this violence and territorial exactly. aggression um a certain cultural conception here mm. I guess could broadly be refer referred to as um, cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. where people that are into um, learning indigenous ways and teachings and sharing that information, um, many of whom get a lot of criticism because if you're not originally from that indigenous culture, you have no business 
sharing that elsewhere. Uh-huh. And I, I always just kind of look at this and it's, it's a nuanced problem, right? Yeah. Because you have someone who maybe doesn't actually honor and respect the original culture and they just want to, um, capitalize on that as a commodity, right? So I'm sure there's an element of that, but I I think there are also a lot of well-meaning people Mm -hmm. who want to serve humanity in the ways that you speak that are drawing from wisdom from different cultures in a way that is authentic and integrous and, and in the intention of benefiting all people. So as someone who's not from the United States and not from Western culture, how do you see cultures like yours and others from around the world, indigenous cultures and their ways, practices, knowledge being shared? What's your perspective on this idea of cultural appropriation? Uh, uh-huh. that's, the, that's the problem in uh, this mission. That's the problem that we have. And uh, let's, you know, forget the concept of hate or the concept of jealousy or the concept of rivalry, you know, why this person get get to do this and not me. But, you know, America is built, I'm sorry to say that, but America is built on the concept of uh, being the number one. And normally, America, in America, every human being who was born in America, grew up in America, is educated to think that no matter where they go, no matter where they find themselves on uh, the face of the planet, they are the number one. <laughs> and, uh, right. you know, the, the chosen one. That concept, you know, is a uh, big because it's, it runs in American families for generations. Generation, you know, to the point where like even in American fam, the reason why in America, families have problems is because even in the family, the mother thinks she needs to be the number one. The father thinks he needs to be the number one. The children thinks the son thinks he needs to be the number one. And then the daughter thinks she needs to be the number one. And so, and so, and so, and so. To the point where, like, uh, at some point, you know, the family will clash on an emotional level. You know, on a physical level and then a lineage level, we all are together. It's my brother, it's my sister, it's my father, it's my mom. But on an emotional level, everybody's broken. Now, when you are broken like this and then uh, you travel to a group of people who have a structure that value the community, that value, the togetherness, you know, that's kind of against individualism. That's against, you know, uh, being, I mean, selfishness and all of that. Then uh, you will have to struggle too. The the struggle will be like, uh, you will try to fit in that community. You will try to fit in that reality. And in trying to fit in it, it's going to demand for you to be so humble and so disciplined. Something that somehow the American upbringing, we don't give to people. We don't give people, you know, the concept of humility and discipline. 
And uh, once you don't give people that, and then they travel around the world, America is not the end of the world. They will travel around the world and discover other realities. So when they travel around the world and then they meet cultures where like family is kept strong, family ties are very strong, everything is done in family, and then, uh, you know, everything is done in the village and everybody, when there's something, everybody come to do it and all of that. No one will call and say like, oh yeah, I have work, I'm not going to be able to come. Everybody drop whatever they do and then just converge and go do one thing that is uh, for the well-being of the member of the of the community. Then uh, the person coming from uh, the Western society will have to learn how to adapt. And in that adaptation, you know, uh, you face the challenge. So when people came and trying to learn uh, from indigenous people, not just us, I, I will kind of assume every indigenous culture. Uh, when you come and try to learn from indigenous people, we only expect two things. Humility and discipline. Because to talk about discipline, discipline is something that uh, comes from the self-respect. So when you put, the, uh, when you put humility and the self-respect together, that's what brings what we call community. That's what brings people, that's what takes people away from individualism. And then I try to build together and stay together and all of that. So in my culture, in my way of doing things, the way we, my father started, the, the way I'm continuing with it, I'm very rigid, very, very rigid when it comes to, you know, a, the initiate or the student or the person trying to learn from me coming and then uh, learning, you're going to have to stand on those pillars. You're going to have to learn how to be humble. You're going to have to learn that you're going to have to start from somewhere to go to reach somewhere. And you're going to have to learn the self-respect. It's not about me. I don't need you to respect me. So when you're trying to act like you're respecting me, sometimes I just tell people, focus on respecting yourself first. I have a lot of work to do to respect myself too. You know, so do that. And in doing the self-respect job, you end up, fo- you know, focusing on the real matters of your life. You focus on what's real in your life and all of that, and what's real in your community, what's real in your family, what's real on earth. And uh, when you force the visitor who comes to be with you, learn from you, you force them to adopt that, they will struggle for some moment. But once they adjust, to that, that's it. You got like a very good ambassador of your culture. You got a very good and great ambassador for your culture, for your spiritual, for your people and all of that. But once you don't do that and then you just open the gate and then you allow the people to be the way they want to be, yeah, then they will take everything from you. They will come and then they will do it. But in any culture, in any spirituality, any system, there's going to be like the, you know, dissidents. Dissidents will kind of have to happen, you know. And then when that happens, yeah, you will have. That's why we have many Christian, many churches for the same, you know, uh, belief. And that's why we have many, you know, Islam practices, Muslim practices for the same religion and all of that. And that's why we have, you know, many Buddhist ways of doing things for the same person, the same belief and all of that. Because at some point, uh, the human fail to 
submit themselves to the demands or to the, of the authenticity of what they try to learn. And then when you fail to do that, then we end up having one reality that we cannot, you know, kind of uh, look away because it's a reality of the original and then the fake or the reality of the authenticity and then the copy. Right. We end up having that. Right. Now, an intelligent person will know that this is authentic. This is uh, original. I can be from uh, a Dogon lineage and still be fake if I didn't take the steps that it needs to learn and then get wherever I am, if I didn't get all the preparation. Just like uh, you can come in my culture and then uh, take all of the steps that I needed and then uh, be ordained and then you can become like, a, you know, the Dogon more than I. You can become like the authentic more than I. So this is uh, the problem. Culture does not have race. Culture is uh, a language. Culture is uh, a way of being, a lifestyle. And uh, within that lifestyle, anyone can learn with dedication. Anyone can learn to live that lifestyle. With discipline, humility, anyone can learn to be that lifestyle. So for us, you are from America. You come to my land and then you learn and then you become, you know, you follow all, you follow all of the things that the culture demands. You speak my language. That's it. You are a dogon. That's it. Because it, once you learn to speak my language, there's nothing I can hide from you again. You end up becoming learning how to even become like authentic. Because even things that we'll be doing, even if I want to hide it from you, I'm not going to be able to hide it because <laughs> You speak my language. There's no other language I'm going to speak. Yeah. Probably I will speak your language and then uh, you speak my language. So that's uh, the problem. And uh, this mission, I impose, you know, people coming to learn to have that. I'm not imposed, actually. I humbly impose people to understand that the concept of humility and self-respect is what makes indigenous people. When you travel to us, that's what makes us us, you know. But when you travel and then you don't want to go through that channel, then you lose everything. So do we have people out there now who are authentic? Yes. And what they're doing? Yes, it doesn't matter what indigenous culture they are holding their hands and all of that. But yes. But do we have people who are copies and then pen handlers and trying to punch? Yeah, we have that one, that too. Now, Reality is this, right? What comes around goes around. In the old time, before the rise of modern society, culture and spirituality was uh, more than gold. Was more than gold. Like, it was so, that was the wealth to have a culture. To have a language that you speak that's like, you know, tells you everything. To have a, you know, a spirituality. That was like the gold. That's where everybody was traveling around. People travel around the world just for that, you know. But nowadays, uh, we change it. We change everything in the way like, uh, the gold becomes something else. And then the culture, you know, is, uh, left behind. And people can just come and then take the practices 
of an indigenous group of people and then leave the culture behind. And then come, you know, in the West and make it a commodity. I've been pretty damn obsessed with mitochondria for the past couple years. From blue light hacks to saunas and cold plunges, I'm always after more ATP, our body's main fuel source. And up until now, there haven't been very many supplements on the market to support mitophagy or the flushing out of old, damaged mitochondria. So when I discovered this unique compound called urolithin A, I was super intrigued. It's found in pomegranate, but it's very hard, well, impossible really, to eat or drink enough of it to get the scientifically proven clinical dose. This is where a product called MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition comes in. They've created three ways to get your daily dose of 500 milligrams of urolithin A in their product MitoPure. They've got a delicious vanilla protein powder that combines muscle building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure and a berry powder that easily mixes into smoothies or just about any drink and finally soft gels for travel. Personally, I love the new starter pack, which lets you try all three forms of MitoPure. This is the first product to offer a precise dose of this compound to upgrade mitochondrial function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength. It actually took 10 years of research to bring this potent product to market, and I'm personally glad it did because it works. Right now is a special offer for my audience. That means you. Use the promo code LUKE10 to get 10% off any 2, 4, or 12-month MitoPure plan at TimelineNutrition.com. That's TimelineNutrition.com. And to learn more about this fascinating discovery, go back and check out episode 389 with Dr. Chris Rinch. It's incredible stuff. So the... The culture is, as you said, not about the race, it's about the way of life, right? But the way of life runs much deeper than just putting on certain garments. Thank you. Wearing a special necklace and burning this type of incense and the kind of the accoutrement, the, the rituals and the, the, tools the tools of a culture don't necessarily indicate that there's a full adoption of the culture. Thank you. So That's kind it. of picking yes. and choosing some of that exactly. and modifying it. Yeah, like yeah. In, a, in a salad bar. <laughs> you know, you, you pick what you want. You the all-you-can-eat salad bar. Yeah, yeah, you pick what you want and then the yeah. rest, you don't want it. So culture cannot function like that. And then nowadays, that's what we see. You know, we see people, you know, with all of the, you know, look, the outside. But the inside has not changed yet. But the outside is the one that is kind of changing. Almost like uh, the other people have to see me that way. It's like a role. Yeah. that someone can adopt. Exactly. And then right. that's where we talk about self-respect. You have to respect yourself in that way, you know. So they, you know, we, my father used to say that uh, uh, when stupidity is rewarded, you know, wisdom will come worthless. You just described America <laughs> in our current state. <laughs> I mean, I love America, yeah. you know, but like, Wow. The, I mean, you just turn on the news here and it's like, I mean, it's not just America, it's yeah. all over the world. Yeah. Most Western yes. cultures. I mean, Most Western cultures. It's, just, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. But I think you're, you're pointing to some really valuable teachings and that is, you know, the principle of humility yeah. and self-respect. If, if those are intact inherently in your character, I think one of the byproducts of that is authenticity. Yep. Right, because humility gives you an understanding of 
who you really are, right? Thank if you. you're real, like that's exactly. one thing Alice and I have noticed about you. And yeah. one of the ways she described you is like really powerful man carries all this wisdom, but he's just, he's a regular guy. He's down to earth. He's humble, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, it's a really important part of that because mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of this term, but it has more to do with kind of um, the gurus of India and whatnot, yeah. right? Like the word guru, uh, the fallen guru syndrome, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, someone will amass a body of knowledge and maybe have some true spiritual gifts and powers. But for some reason, humility eludes them. So they start believing their own hype Mm -hmm. and becoming corrupted Mm -hmm. and inauthentic. And um, in some some cases, even... um, exploitive of other people and abusive yeah. of other people, right? Yes. And we over here call that just what I call it's the fallen guru syndrome mm-hmm. where it's like somebody wrote some beautiful books, they had some beautiful teachings, they got a following, they became famous, got mm-hmm. some notoriety. And next thing you know, they're abusing people and taking advantage of people and they come all about money yeah. and fame and all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. And I always think, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> if you have these spiritual gifts, can't you see that you're becoming full of shit? Exactly. But if you don't have humility, you can't see yourself, you so see you it. don't know. You can see it. Yeah, that's the that's the problem in this work nowadays because I don't know what we're going to leave to our children. And uh, everybody wants to be something but expect, except what they are. And then uh, the self-knowledge, like to know the self and to know why where, how, about yourself as a human. Because normally, in my culture, at the age of uh, seven, you're supposed to start questioning yourself. You're supposed to be asking those questions. Those are very existential questions. You know, why? Mom, why did you give me this name? Dad, why did you give me this name? What for? Why do you ask me to go to school? Did you go? Those are questions that any seven-year-old child could start asking to the parent. And then uh, there already, the person is building the foundation to know themselves, to know their role in uh, the community, to know their role in, uh, you know, on the face of the planet. But uh, many of us didn't get that chance to be in the situation where we got to ask the questions and then we get the answers to those questions. Most of the time, questions we ask brought more questions. We ask questions and then the answer they give you, we even get you to go like, uh, to be buried more into questions and all of that. And then that end up becoming like, okay, then everybody will have to develop their own personality, you know. Uh, being a priest, being a healer is a way of life. Being a shaman is a way of life. Being a guru is a way of life. And that does not take away the fact that you're just a human being full of shit. You know, you kaka. <laughs> I mean, with every, with yeah. that you and I are sharing now this discussion. I love this discussion because it's almost like uh, that's what, you know, most of the teachers need to be letting people know. Your disciple coming to learn from you, they need to understand that. They need to understand that you are a human being, you know, even Jesus uses bathroom. 
Even Mahomet goes to the bathroom. Buddha goes to the bathroom. Unless they're not human beings, unless they are not in this physical body that you and I we're in. So that means we are just full of shit. You know, almost like uh, 70% of our body is uh, just full of shit, you know. So we are <laughs> the only beings that eat things that are dead. So meaning our body, to maintain our body, take care of our body, feed our body, give it energy, regenerate everything in our body, something has to die. Something has to die for that to happen. Whether it's uh, vegetables, uh, whether it's uh, fruit, or whether it's, uh, whatever it might be, something has to suffer. Something has to suffer before we survive. And then yet, we want the rest of the world to look at us as we were just like pure lights. You know, and I love that, Alison. I know Alison saw that in me. A lot of people see that in me. I get that a lot, saying he just is full of knowledge, but also just full of human being shit. He's just a simple, normal guy trying to do his thing and then have a goal in his life and trying to achieve it. And that's what I do, you know, because I'm not going to, even when you come to my home, my house, I'm not hiding anything from you. Everything will just be there. You know, we eat together. My mom will cook for you. We eat whatever I'm eating, you eating it and all of that. Anywhere we stop to eat, you know, and all of that. So that's what we need to kind of, you know, change as the people kind of being like the pathfinders and changing people's life and trying to change, affect people's life and all of that. We have to let them know that, you know, it's not about becoming, you know, an angel because angels don't live on earth. Angels, that's why they have wings. And their wings, when you have wings, you're not supposed to be living on earth. You're going to be living somewhere else. The earth will be like a wrong place for you, you know. So we just have to teach people to be human. That's it. I think uh, in my experience, one of the most valuable teachings that I've had is um, the awareness of the different traps that come at your different levels of development. Mm -hmm. The one that was yes. really impressed upon me was the trap of ego, ego. right? Taking yeah. credit for the spiritual progress that you've made or the talents that you have. And I'm like, I'm sure I've done it, you know, many times probably, right? But not to the point of pathology, at least yeah. to my awareness. If I miss something, <laughs> anyone let me know. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just... I've always felt like a regular guy, even yeah. though I've made a lot of advancement progress. over the years. Like I really have made a lot of progress. Exactly. I'm yeah. of a much higher consciousness than I once was. And I think I'm getting higher, right? Yep. But I had a teacher once and he said, you got to watch out for the trap, man. Ego, It'll if you're not aware of how the ego operates, this is just the vernacular that was used with yeah. me. I'm sure you have your own way of saying that. But if you're not aware of it and you're not, in the observer witness perspective, like what you get when you meditate, right? You yeah. see, oh, I'm, I'm thinking thoughts. Oh, I'm having feelings. There's someone who's watching that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. right? He said, if you don't keep in touch with the one who's watching, the ego is going to come and exactly. start thinking you're a spiritual you are, giant, right? All, Did it you know when it really got me one time? Yeah. It, this is actually, I'm going to be honest, this is how I learned this. I went to India mm -hmm. on, on a 21-day silent retreat, oh, wow. and I was with some true spiritual masters, these uh, Indian mm -hmm. mystics. And uh, 
one of the things that we were doing is um, being initiated into a practice called giving diksha. It's like you lay hands on someone's head and okay. you know they have a kind of spiritual experience, right? And so you go through this training and, and whatnot. And I didn't know that lesson at the time. So I went to India. I came back wearing the robes and the beads and saying namaste to everyone. You know? My ego took on a role, right? That wasn't the authentic, back to authenticity. I'm not Indian. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm from California. That's a hello. Yeah. So I came, you know, I came back doing all the things, right? And, and what had happened was... That my ego is kind of sitting there and goes, ah, we found an identity to grab onto to elevate our self-perception, right? Yes. And that was one of the times when my teacher was like, you lost the plot. Here yeah. you go to India to become more spiritual. Yeah. And yeah, I did. But also the ego was like, oh, we're going to grab onto this. Yeah. Now you're special, right? You're, oh, yeah. Now you've got the beads yeah. and the yeah. thing. and. And I got my ass kicked when I came back, <laughs> and and thank God it was it was harsh yeah. to learn. It was painful to be deflated in the way that I was, but yeah. thank God that happened. It was a huge lesson for me. And yeah. don't believe your own hype, you know. No, <laughs> like, no, I mean, that's stay like, uh, stay human, man. Just be down to earth. You yeah, know, we have a we have a saying in uh, my place that no trees can see its own roots. Mm. There's no tree that can say that it kind of sees its own roots. You always have to make sure the roots are strong enough, clean enough. So for that to happen, it's going to have to take another tree, another person to be able to see your roots and all of that. And then that brings the check and balance in uh, your own evolution. There's the accountant. Speaking. <laughs> <laughs> That's a kind of thinking. You know, so then uh, that brings that, right? Where like uh, the other human can be the reason why you look at yourself and then uh, educate yourself and fix and keep moving forward. The event that we had yesterday was so powerful. Um, really, we, after the event, we spent all night. We went to sleep like 2 a.m. or so. We were just talking. So powerful to the point where like, I'm like, I have to question myself. I went and sat down outside. I'm like, what did I learn here? What was the teaching that all of these people came today to teach me? But everybody came, over 50 people came to sit and listen and go through a ceremony that, you know, I will be the one leading. But after all, I have to sit in my own solitude, come and think like, well, these people came to teach me life. That's it. What are you here to? That's teach? it. See, and if you weren't, a, if you didn't have the self awareness of your tree's roots, right? At yeah. the end of the day, your ego could be inflated, and you're yeah. like, "I'm the man." Exactly. Everyone came. I got all this attention. Exactly. Everyone's bowing down to me, and that's it. That's the trap. Yeah. Once people start, I mean, even people I work with, I just when we we have a way that we greet each other, and I feel so uncomfortable anytime that happens. I'm like, hey, we just, I'm not in my work right now. I'm just a, a human like you. I know you respect me as a teacher, but just, hey, what's up? How are you doing? Hello, bye. Do our thing. And uh, the ego, that's uh, the one. What What's the Dogon terminology in your language for ego? How do you guys contextualize or say that word or, or yeah. that concept? Yeah, the concept would be the... Uh, someone who care for 
themselves, but not for the rest. Mm. Meaning like in uh, the most selfish way. So it's like a self-centeredness rather than an other center. And other centeredness. Yeah, if I say self-centeredness, that would be you know some people in English might perceive it wrong, but it's more so like uh, you are focusing more on uh, what other people would think about you. Mm, okay, you centered on on yourself to the point where like uh, what will other people think about me, you know, and all of that. So then uh, we end up using the concept of. Uh, you know, you don't have a grima. And then grima would be like, a, originally that word would be like a ga, meaning a ka, and then ma. You don't have the justice of the spirit. Like ka would be like the spirit. And then uh, ma would be like uh, the justice. You know, so your spirit does not have justice, does not have, does not have a way of, uh, you know, doing its, uh, self-justice, checking itself, you know. So already at that moment, you are someone that people might be like, uh, he's a crazy person. <laughs> he's a mental sick person. <laughs> That's how you go. Okay. And I think that's a, that's a good standard to set. Like if somebody is too deeply identified with their ego, they are crazy. That's I mean, I, and if I do it, I'm crazy. You know what I mean? That's you're not in your right mind when you're being motivated by that part of yourself. Yes. yes. That's what it is. You know, my father, I live with him and I saw his life and his life with all of the power and all of the knowledge that he has and the power of clairvoyance that he had. You wake up and see him and it's just like simple food, simple life, simple, you know, uh, rigidity that he follows. And then the rest is about, uh, you know, just living life, being a human being, being a father, being a member of family, being a member of community and all of that. But once he finds himself in the situation, you know, of work, then he's working. I cannot, you know, wake up and then I be like a priest 24 hours a day. I cannot wake up and then be a healer 24 hours a day. Because at the end of the day, I still have to go in the bathroom, take off my shirt, my clothes, and shower. That's not something that can take like 10 minutes to 20 minutes. I need to still go use bathroom, sit on the toilet. It's the same thing. I need to sleep and all of that. So there's a lot of uh, problems in uh, our people's mind now. When I say our people, I'm talking about uh, us, you know, uh, reclaiming some cultures and some ways of life and some indigenous ways of doing things. And that problem is like we're making it a commodity. We're making it something that can be sold. Don't just blame, you know, the people who are coming from the West and seeing us and they say they want something. Don't blame the, those people. For those people, the value that they see in us is a value. They respect that value. That's why they travel to me. If you travel to my place for, to learn, it's because you saw some value in uh, what I have in my place. And I'm going to have to be the one to be able to show you that uh, indeed it's a value. By the way, I'm going to be giving it to you. But if I make that value a commodity, where well, like, you know, you give me this, I give you this, you do this, I give you this, then uh I make it, you know, valueless. I'm 
will lose its value. And then uh, that's uh, me being responsible, teaching you that whatever you came to get can be sold, can be, you know, is whatever, you know, can be done, used for whatever reason, you know, you want it to be used for. And that's what we're doing as wrong as the people in our indigenous cultures. We're selling the culture. We started selling it. And I'm saying it with all honesty. I'm not, you know, hiding anything. Because those, when you, when you have self-respect, you know that you are selling your culture. You know that you are selling your ancestors' ways. You know that, you know, people come in instead of the person spending seven years before they get to spending time with you, learning from you from day one to seven years before you can get to call them a priest or a shaman or a healer or what. If the person comes and lives for two weeks, three weeks, and then uh, at the end you tell them they are a king, they are a queen, they are a shaman, they are a priest, they are a priest, they are this, that's your fault. That means me trying to hold the authenticity of what I, I gained from my parents, my father. I look at you and I know that the person paid you something to make them be what they want to be. So you're selling the person the dream. And then it's a dream of a culture that you're selling to the person. But that dream, the person will come back in the West and trying to now manifest that dream to realize that uh, it was just a dream. It's not going to work. Would the person go back? No, they already spend a lot. They're not going to go back. What would they do? They would embellish it. Build around it. Make it become something that the West would take. And uh, that's one thing that I personally, you know, don't do. I don't bend my culture for people. I make people bend down for my culture because that's the only way you can benefit from it. And um, everywhere I go to, I just tell people, I'm like, oh, this is how we're going to do it. You know, oh, but what about doing this? So I'm like, this is how I saw my father did it. This is how I saw my elders in my temple did it. I'm not going to do it. Not because I'm in America or I'm in England, I'm in, uh, you know, Russia, that I'm going to do it different. No, we're going to do it the way I saw my people doing it. And that's the same way we're going to do it. So once we... You know, as the indigenous people, when we come to wake up to that reality and uh, build the gates to protect, you know, ourselves and then make sure that we protect the people coming to us because it's danger. It's very dangerous for someone born in, uh, I don't know, somewhere in uh, Kansas City and then you grow, you get up and then you're like, oh, I discover light. I'm going to, you know, China, I'm going to India, I'm going to South America to discover something. And then uh, two weeks later, three weeks later, or you do a few trips and then you come back and you want to stand as a, a representative of, a, not even representative, you want to stand as an owner of uh, whatever you learn from those people, you saw from those people. It's so dangerous for the people who did not get a chance to travel to those places. It's so dangerous because you don't play with spirituality and you don't play with uh, any type of spirituality. So there's some type of spirituality that are like uh, 
engraved in the memory of the earth in nature. Meaning like uh, it's so old that you cannot change it. It's too old, you know, so old to the point where like your life, you know, you know, the experience, the your life ex- expectancy, like what you live, you know, since you've been born and everything you've been living cannot even be, will just be like maybe a grain of sand on the beach. So there's a lot of things that, you know, we take people step by step. You have to take people step by step to reach, you know, certain things like baby step. You know, you have to start from somewhere. But once you just give the people, you expose certain things to the people and all of that, that's like a big problem that you're causing for the person. You're not protecting the person. But as a good teacher, I have to protect my student. I have to protect my initiate. There's some food that my initiate may want to eat. But I will tell them, don't eat that food because it's not going to be good for you. Even though I know he's hungry. You know, I prefer that student standing with hunger, with that patience, until we find whatever he can eat and then uh, it's going to be good for him. Same thing. I'm not going to let, you know, a child eat something that I know it's going to be bad for them and then later on they're going to be sick. You have to, you know, pro- you have to guide. And that's where we kind of, you know, even have to be calling ourselves pathfinders, you know, because we have to find pathways, you know, to get people to elevate, to get people to reach where they're trying to reach. But not just go with, uh, you know, the flow of things, you know. So if you come to learn from me and then, uh, you know, uh, another brother come to learn from another sister come to learn from me, you guys have different destinies. Different destinies, different background, different experience, different past lives. You got everything's different. You're not identical. So the same thing cannot apply to all of you. The same thing cannot apply to all of you. So everybody will have to take responsibility through that culture, through the wisdom, the knowledge of the culture. Everybody will have to take the responsibility of uh, owning it. And after you own it and then you give it respect, then it's going to work into you and make you who you want to, who you know you're gonna be, and who the other person is gonna be. Then you cannot be, you cannot use like uh, the intelligence of our culture. That you cannot use our culture and be like the other person. No, like all of the wisdom that you know we our ancestors preserved and everything. Once you receive it. And you really put your hard work and dedication for it with all honesty, all intellectual and spiritual honesty. It's going to make you be that being that you vow that you're coming to be on earth. It's not going to make you be like me. Because that's not the vow that you made when you were coming on earth. Unless the coincidence will be like, okay, we made the same vow. <laughs> Unless that kind of coincidence. You know, now if, uh, you know, there's no coincidence, then are you just identical? And whatever you learn from us, you know, that's what you're going to be. So it's almost like uh, pouring, you know, uh, water in uh, a bottle of uh, Coca-Cola does not make that water Coca-Cola. It's just water in a bottle of Coca-Cola. Unless we force that bottle of water, change it, 
take that water filter through the uh, the process of uh, you know changing and all of that, then we're gonna have to colorate the water and put all of the aromas, and that's what people do with spirituality. But you don't want to pour you know water in a bottle of Coca Cola, sell it as Coca Cola. That would be so dishonest, you know. And then uh, the same way that we kind of uh, you know view how uh, when people travel, even in our, in our culture, we have people who are ready to sell the culture. And that's what I'm saying. Don't, you know, just blame the Westerners traveling to Africa, traveling to South America, traveling to Asia, traveling to those places where there's still some, you know, integrity, you know, towards nature and towards the invisible. Don't blame them. You have to blame the people themselves. You know, I'm a, I'm not very well uh, represented around the world or in some communities because I'm a, that kind of person where I don't give you, you have to work for it. You know, I don't give you, you have to work for it. I make you work for it. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're coming with. You know, I have uh, people who come and then uh, in their houses or in their places, you know, people bow to them and all of that. But you come in my temple, in my pe- with my people, we're like, well, here you take off your shoes here. Here you take off your shirt and we give you a lapa to wear. It's traditional thing to wear. Here you have to kneel down and then clap to this power. Here, there you go sit. We give you all of that. We have to give you all of that. And but that at the same time teaches you how to teach people one day when you're gonna be standing where you know we are standing. You know, so thank you. No problem. Beautiful. I have to thank you for having me here. You know, sharing. I like this discussion. I love it. We can keep talking, and you know, it's, it's fun, dude. Fun. I got a lot. I got a lot more questions. So <laughs> yeah, I hope you, I hope you had your Wheaties this morning. Yeah. Let's take a minute here, as I would love to share my latest discovery with you, lifestyleist listeners. As soon as I tried this product, I became instantly obsessed, and it's now officially a non-negotiable ingredient in my morning smoothie and sometimes even coffee. First time I tried it, I felt focused, uh, my mind was clear, and it continues to improve my mental performance on the daily. I actually had some in my smoothie this morning and will likely do another scoop in some water for my afternoon work block to keep this brain pumping. You're probably hip to the superpowers of mushroom extracts and collagen protein. Well, the product I'm talking about here contains the most hyper-concentrated forms of four of the best brain-boosting mushrooms. So that's lion's mane, chaga, cordyceps, and reishi, plus collagen protein and Peruvian cacao. This magic in a jar, my friends, is called Collagenius. And I love that it turns your brain on without any jitters or crash whatsoever. It's super clean brain energy. So if you're getting beat down with the old brain fog, have difficulty focusing, and want to repair your brain in the most natural way, you definitely want to check this stuff out. Here's what you do. Go to newtopia.com slash lukegenius and use the code luke10 at checkout and save 10%. That's N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A, newtopia.com slash lukegenius. And check this out. Newtopia, the company that makes College Genius, is so confident that you'll love this product that they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. So uh, there's no risk for you here to check this out. Again, your link is newtopia.com slash lukegenius and the code is luke10. Do it now, you guys. Your brain will thank you. 
Okay, so so much ancient wisdom has been lost mm-hmm. around the world from all indigenous cultures, right? Yes. And it seems to me that much of that wisdom has not only been lost, but it's been repressed. And history has been rewritten yep. <laughs> about so many things in so many ways. The, the nature of the universe, the nature of the human experience, who we are, where we came from, what we're doing here, all the things, right? And um, yesterday, you were talking about a couple different representations of that. And, I, and I'd like to go into both a bit if we can. Okay. One was around the calendar mm-hmm. and the way that we keep, keep time, which really spoke to me because I struggle with Allison's like, see, now we know why you can't read a calendar. You can't do time. And I was like, I fucking knew it. We got duped. This isn't how time and calendars actually work. No wonder I'm always out of sync with it. I'm right, you know. Yeah. Um, and the other one was language. Yeah. So maybe, maybe let's go into to time and you know, specifically the Dogon way of keeping time and when your years and months start, how you break down the day. Uh, I think that this is fascinating, and and I think that it's no accident that human beings are so confused. We don't even know what time it is, according to the cosmos, right? We don't know what week it is, what season it is, where we are in the universe has all been obscured. Um, Where do we even start? So maybe a good place to start is like, you know, what time is it? (laughs) You know. Yes. Let me. These are things that, you know, when you share, maybe now in the modern world, we are allowed to share those kind of things because those archives have been protected, sealed and protected, but sealed and protected for the fact that there was a time where when you speak about time and that time is not what's Vatican decided, or that time is not what the power ruling decided, your head gets chopped off. You get beheaded for that. You know, people were killed for that. For just talking about time, just speaking about things that, you know, the one who's in power is like, no, you don't talk about it. I'm the one in power. Everybody follow my time. When the time, you know, that we're using in the modern society, modern world, the whole world nowadays, the time that we're using uh, was uh, kind of introduced. It was supposed to be so perfect. It was told. Then that was the time where uh, science and the Vatican religion, science and religion work together. That was that time. And uh, that was the time where uh, the so-called witch, witches and, you know, wizards were being killed. That was the time where the medicine men and the medicine women were being burned at stake, you know, every Sunday. That was around that time. And uh, those that were being burned were being burned and killed just because they were trying to say the truth about reality and the truth about our divine existence. And that is almost like challenging the one trying to represent themselves as the divine 
representation in uh, humanity. So then uh, the partnership has to exist between religion and the science then. And they came up with uh, all of that. How can we do that? The calendar we follow on today is not a calendar that's just like, uh, you know, people don't know what it is. Like the leaders don't know what it is. They know that it's not the real thing. But uh, that calendar was introduced as a, a, an anti-spiritual movement. Because the human being cannot worship someone that they somehow call a god or a goddess, or a tree in nature, while the Vatican exists, someone that represents God on earth exists. So then uh, every human being then around that time in the history of the book, or uh, in the book of history, I meant to say, everyone then was obliged to worship the ruler in the Vatican. You don't worship your plants. You don't worship your medicine. You don't worship your village divinity. You don't worship your village entities. That would be against the Vatican law and the, reli the religion then. So then they made it, you know, so big that, you know, uh, they have to come up with a reason to start a calendar. Before that, the Julian calendar was the one that was being used. And at some point, the calculation were wrong. There was a time in the human life, especially in Europe, where Time was counted different. Where, like, uh, when you live in the mountains, the way you count time is different from when you live in the valley. And then the one living in the mountain, you know, has like 80 minutes to represent an hour. And the one living in the valley has about uh, 40 minutes or 46 minutes to represent an hour. Because the sun set on those long before it set on those living on top of the mountain. That's how, you know, immature or amateur, you know, the science, you know, was then, science and religion was at that moment. One question uh, I will have to challenge our viewers and listen to all of these beautiful souls that, you know, follow, you know, this uh, podcast is that we like talking about, uh, we start counting our time in the West even the watch that we're wearing, anytime we look at our phone, we speak about uh, minutes. We speak about uh, hours. We speak, we speak about seconds. Then no one ever asks a question why we started counting our time with second, but not with the first. No one asks that question. <laughs> you don't start counting time at you know, with a second. When there is a first, what happened to the first? The whole humanity don't even pay attention to that. Indigenous people, we know, even, even a child, five-year-old knows that to count something, you start from one to go to two. You start from first to go to second. But we start counting our time from a second and then the next thing, we're in minutes. The next thing, we're like an hour. The next thing, we're like a day. The next thing, we're like a week. So if we have to 
go, if we are to go about that, let me say this, minutes. The concept of one minute is based on uh, the heartbeat of a human being, 60 heartbeats is uh, what the concept of one minute is. And uh, the concept of uh, hour will depend on uh, those heartbeats, time, 60, you know, minutes, right? But there's someone living, born and living on the northern pole, their heartbeat will be different from someone living on the southern pole, different from someone living on the, around the equator. Someone's heartbeat, someone living on top of the mountains will have a different heartbeat. And then someone living, you know, in the valley, on the plain, and all of that, by the rivers, and all of that, you know, will have, a, you know, different heartbeats. So already we just facing now like a, a contem contemporary agreement on even how to count time. And that contemporary agreement is like, let's just make it 60 minutes because average human being heartbeats, you know, if your heart beats 60 time, then you have a second and you have a minute. Right? And when you put it into perspective, it doesn't make sense. Right? So even those living in the mountains counting time based on uh, you know, the 16 minute, I mean, 16 second, 60 second for a minute is wrong. Does a pregnant lady heart beats like I think 100 times normally, a 120 times normally a minute? Uh, what we call, you know, a minute. But then uh, is she living in our time or is she living outside of our time? <laughs> you know? So when we consider all of those realities, we will see that, you know, we divide uh, the modern society, you know, lie to all of us. They lie to all of us because they have to work hard to suppress and almost eradicate and then, uh, you know, get into just, you know, people who have been holding knowledge, you know, out of the picture. And uh, also educating the modern human being not to go and look for the answers. And now, the modern human being, even when they do have a way to go look for answers, they go to places where life is comfortable, everything shining, you know, and all of that. They don't, they're not going to tell you to travel to Africa to go. That's the, you know, cradle of humanity. If there's any answers that you're looking for on Earth, that's where people are supposed to be going because that's where everything started, awareness started. You know, but somehow they painted Africa and African indigenous cultures as uh, evil, as a uh, voodoo, as uh, you know, all of those you know things that you know uh, people talk know about African practices. But our practices are just pure intelligence of nature and then uh, of the universe. It's like a teaching, it's like a mystery schools. You know, so let's go to. The month. We're following a calendar that's telling us that, you know, it has 12 months a year. And then those 12 months a year, we have months that are 21 days and 31 days. We have months that are 30 days. 
we have months that are 28 days, actually one month in a year, that kind of change depending on what's happening. You know, either 29 days, either 20, 28 days. And uh, on top of that, you know, if it still doesn't make sense, because for us humans, it's supposed to be like, why we cut in time that way? It's supposed to make sense. But we don't question, right? We even learned that at university. We even get degrees, PhDs and all of that with uh, those kind of things, you know. And then uh, we even have months that are like, uh, when we take the month of uh, September. September in French to say uh, the number seven, you say set. Set. And uh, September is almost like uh, saying the seventh month. But somehow the seventh month end up being the ninth month of uh, the year in our calendar. And then we go to October. Oct. Oct will be like eight. And then we end up counting our time where October is the 10th month of uh, our calendar. When the name of the month itself let us know that it is there. The number eight is there. November, like neuf, nueve. It's like, you know, we count time thinking that we count it, you know, to be like an 11th month of the year. But we call that 11th month the name that tell us that it's the ninth month. December, same thing. 12th month of the year. And then we call, we call it by the name of... Uh, you know, uh, something that is uh, in the 10th position, 10 December. But even that, all of our PhDs, all of our, you know, political leaders, no one questioned that. No one think, you know, it's time to rewrite the history of humanity. If we don't want to rewrite it, then let's uh, reveal the archives that indigenous people have been keeping that we don't want anyone to know about. Because if you tell the world, like, to go to the indigenous people to see what are the archive, then uh, the center of humanity change. It's not going to be anymore the so-called superpower country. Because the concept of superpower country is not necessarily based on the knowledge of uh, our time and our space. It's based on uh, the knowledge of how to destroy our time and our space. The capacity of destruction of our time and space is what makes some countries become like the superpower countries. Not based on uh, the advancements of the human genius, not based on the advancement of ingenuity that humanity produce, you know. And uh, another discrepancy that, you know, look at, you can look and then uh, understand that we are really being led as uh, rams and cows and all of that in our modern society or our modern world now is that we talk about midnight, which in English, perfect English, will mean the middle of the night. We talk about, uh, you know, midday, which in English will mean the middle of the day. 
And uh, at the same time, we made some gymnastics in our approach to time and space in the way that we go 60 minutes from midnight, 60 minutes after midnight, we count 1 a.m., meaning we are in a new day. Because when you check after midnight, 60 minutes after midnight, you will see that, you know, time change and the day change. And we are in a new day. And no one question like uh, what kind of gymnastic, or what kind of, uh, you know, acrobacy or what kind of, uh, you know, magic allow a human being to go from, uh, you know, a middle of the night to a new day in 60 minutes. <laughs> The new day should be when the sun comes out. Sun comes out. That's daytime. That's daytime. Yeah. So what kind of magic we use to go from me? You need to run for president. <laughs> Change some shit around here. You need to run. We this has never made, these things never made sense. We will vote for you. You know. And, and what about like yesterday too, you were talking about when we, what we call the new year on our Gregorian calendar as January 1st is in the middle of winter when everything's dead. Everything's There's nothing dead. new. That's like the oldest time of the year. Exactly. Not the newest time like of the year. Everything's dead. It's like, ah, God. You see, you know, we, yeah. who goes and celebrates, you know, a new year, a new year when everything's dead? When in nature you look and then even flies don't fly. Mosquitoes are not alive. All of the birds migrate, hide. All of the, you know, life, natural life and all of that kind of go to hide. But that's when human, we comes out to say like, oh, we're celebrating a new year. Do the Dogon people in your archives have a totally different calendar that's established? We, yeah, yeah. We have a, a different calendar and uh, it's a, actually the oldest. We like saying that and then uh, people, you know, don't like us saying that we have the oldest calendar that exists. Well, we say that we have the oldest calendar that exists because we haven't changed the way we count time since the time of the pharaohs. We haven't changed the way time is counted, you know. And then uh, if Africa is like uh, the place of uh, the cradle of humanity, you don't get to reach the state of awareness. You don't reach the state of awareness if you don't know your time. For even Africa or the continent or the Valley civilization to be considered as a, a place where humanity for the first time came to, you know, achieve awareness is uh, the day that we have actually completed the map of the sky. The map of the one, the day the map of the sky was completed. That's the day that, you know, they said, okay, now we know our space. We know our time. Then with the space and time, because you cannot separate the two. The two concepts work together and you cannot separate them. There's no way you can separate them. You cannot talk about time without the space. And you cannot talk about the space without time. That's what existence is. So the whole existence by itself, the whole universe is a time and space together, working together, you know, to reach some somewhere. 
and the the day our ancestors in the Nile Valley, human ancestors in the Valley, achieve that ingenuity, that ingenuity, and all of that, that's the day that they declare like they reach awareness. So you wonder why people in the modern society are the way they are. That's because there's no awareness, because no one knows what time it is. No one knows the space they live in and what. No one. Everybody just knows about their job and then uh, how to bring the bread on the table and then all of that. And the latest episode of Keeping Up With Our Kardashians. Exactly. Keeping up with, uh, you know, the reality <laughs> shows and all of that. People have time. People have time to distract themselves, but people don't have time to research and question their existence. Right. People well, this is, you know, this is uh, the path of the mystic, right? The one who sits in nature and observes in solitude. And, and these are the people that we go to the mountaintop in the Himalayas or wherever and yeah. get the wisdom from those people who don't know anything. Right? anything. It's like they're you know, the uneducated uh, are the initiated. Yeah. Right? Undeveloped and all of that. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's sad the way our cultures look at uh, the modern world. We appreciate the plains. We appreciate, you know, even uh, the plane, the concept of plane is like imitation, right? In our culture, in our teaching, we teach people that uh, there's no emptiness in the universe. The universe is already full. That's why we call it the universe. That's why we call it the cosmos. Universe, like something that is unique, but within it, there's a lot of... Uh, diverse things that can manifest where everything is in the perfect order, the cosmos, you know, and uh, nothing can be added. Nothing new can be added within it. Oh, that's a trip. So like, I'm thinking just from the um, sort of Vedic philosophy that there is only one thing, consciousness, right? So uni, one. One. Verse versatility. versatility. So it's like it's multiple expressions of one. One thing. Okay. So that is means, that kind of, is that sort of what you're yeah, that's saying kind of what you know I'm putting it with that a religion, religious, you know, perspective. Sure, sure. That's just more. where I know that concept. From. Exactly. You know, but on the intellectual <sighs> on the intellectual, you know, perspective on it, you know, approach on that. We we say that it's like one thing that exists and within that thing, everything is different. They're functioning for the advancements of that thing. It's like a human body. Human body is like a universe. We can call human body a universe where it's like one thing, but everything in the human body, different organs and different stuff and all of the all of the cells and everything and everything working together from the smallest to the biggest all of them working together for the body to achieve whatever supposed to be achieving same thing as the universe right and within that universe we learn once the the rise of uh, uh I think that was a industrial revolution in uh, England when the Industrial Revolution was, uh, you know, uh, born in England, then uh, science, technology, all of that started kind of now producing these dreams 
of uh, utopic, actually utopic dreams that things, certain things can be added, certain things can be done. But we have to do those things by, you know, I mean, things that nature did not do, we want to do those things. Things that nature did not make, we want to make those things. Meaning like we want to challenge nature or either destroy nature to make what it has not done. You know, right? So people travel around the world, maybe it was slower without the highways. People travel around the world, maybe it took them time without the planes. But somehow they travel. Even when the pilgrim came to America, they travel from, uh, you know, East Coast to West Coast. They did that. How did they do that? We don't question, you know. But we just, you know, get to be in the, the state of uh, enjoying what we call creation, what we call invention. We even have degrees. We have like recognitions that we give to those people who are inventors for whatever they invented. But to invent something, that thing has to be something that does not exist. To create something, it has to be something that does not exist, and then you're creating it. But the human being, in our teachings, the human being brain is capable of everything, except one thing, creation. The human being will not, brain will not create something that it hasn't been exposed to. Either in your dreams, either in uh, nature. So the brain, for the brain to be able to create something, it has to be exposed to it first. It has to be, you know, be something that the brain already perceived or seen for it to, you know, be created. Now, what we end up calling invention and we end up calling creation is the mistakes that we make in trying to, <laughs> the mistake that we make in trying to copy what nature made. Like uh, when we take the, uh, the plane, it's like a bird. We watch how the bird fly and then we try to imitate. And then uh, we want to fly like birds, so we did that, you know. And then we look at many cars that we drive. Every car that you see, once you turn the lights on and you watch it from far in the dark, it's like an animal. It's like the face of an animal in nature. Everything we're doing, we even give them the names, Jaguar, this, 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 that, and all of that. So it's like, uh, you know, that's how we... Even, even boats are like a bird, like a duck on the water. Exactly, <laughs> duck on the water or, yeah. you know... With their feet, the little propellers. Thank you. you know? So it's the same thing. So we have yeah. to watch something in nature to copy it. But we don't call that invention. Now, once you copy it and then you copy it wrong, that's what you call invention. That's what you call, uh, you know, cre creativity. But that's what the modern society kind of rewards. So you see, at the depth of the human brain, the modern society or Western society rewards mistakes, rewards things that are fake, rewards things that are not the reality. So then, why will you and I be sitting here blaming this American young guy, young boy, or young lady who is like, I want awareness let me travel to Peru and go get it. Let me travel to the Amazon and go get it. Let me travel to China or India and go get it. 
and then they come and then uh, they make mistakes. People like that. People don't like people who do things real because in the depth of every brain in this society, whatever is not real is more rewarded. That's why we have all of the, uh, how do you call them, like uh, stars in uh, you know Hollywood and all of that. They, have to pre- they don't live the way Hollywood present them. I think you even can tell me better. They have their things that they do every day like a normal human being. But because they are hired to, you know, pay to show a fake of them, then that fake of them is rewarded, you know. So that's a, a big problem of uh, our society nowadays, you know. And uh, Very interesting, yeah. interesting perspective that I'm going to really have to ponder that one. Yeah. What what about what about language? Language. Now we look at the, all the Latin languages, right? It's like they represent uh, different cultures, yet they're still essentially rooted in in the same mm-hmm. uh, foundation. And you you were talking yesterday about your language and all the many dialects of your people, and then at one point you even talked about um, when you were playing your drum, which, by the way, sent me into a really unbelievably deep state, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned, you said, yeah, my people, when I'm playing my drum, they it's actually speaking and it's speaking a language and they would know by the way I'm hitting the drum and the different notes that it's producing exactly what I'm saying. I thought that was fascinating. So yes. tell us a bit about, about your language and language as a whole. And what I think is most interesting about that is the limitations of most of the languages in the world. Let's just say Mm -hmm. like, you know, the Latin languages again, Mm -hmm. uh, that they really lack the true expression of the expansiveness of nature and the natural world and the cosmos. So we're kind of, it seems with the language that I speak in English, for example, that I'm limited to a very, uh, a very limited bandwidth of communicating my experience. Yes. English, if we want to, because we're speaking in English, is a, is a, is called a language, you know, because we just don't know that. We don't know what the concept of language is, you know. In French, the tongue is la langue. So that's where the concept of even language is coming from. It's even a borrowing. So for someone who speaks English, to say that English is a language is even controversial because you sp- you call your la- your tongue in a, a language that belongs to another tongue because language is coming from the lang the a French word for language for the tongue is lang yeah it's Spanish uh, lengua lengua right, is that right lengua Exactly. So yeah. then, uh, for English person to say like, "Oh, I'm speaking a language. English is my language," it doesn't make sense in the brain. So, English has, uh, I think, 26 letters to manifest its language. 26 A B A B, you know, all the way to Z. And uh, in 20 with 26 letters. How will you be able to manifest the whole universe, the whole nature, the whole existence? 
with only 26 letters, if we are considered to be like intelligent beings, I mean, how can we manifest uh, our intelligence, you know, with 26 letters? You can see we are limited. And because of uh, that, we end up using like, you know, concepts. No, we end up putting words together to explain a concept. We end up putting sounds together to make up words and then all of that. And uh, when we say like uh, transport, transport, transformation, and all of that, it's because in English, there's no way to just, you know, explain the concept of something that is uh, changing, you know. So then uh, we have to be using two different, you know, concepts to do that. Now, uh, English is not a language. Any language, quote-unquote, that's uh, derived from uh, the Latin roots is not a language. We call that a dialect. That's called a dialect. Called the dialects is like uh, a deterioration of a language. It's like a degeneration of a language. And then anyone who speak French, English, Spanish, and all of that, those are just like the, the generation of uh, the Latin, you know, concept, which itself is uh, also like uh, a combination of many uh, other civilizations, you know, language that put together to make it, right? So when we look at uh, uh, English, we cannot make sounds. We only speak letters. Like let's say you teach a child that the letter B, you call it B, right? Or uh, let's say B. But we don't teach our children in English, you don't teach a child that that letter is B. But you teach your child that that letter is uh, B. But it's a letter. But that letter has two letters to describe it. Because B will be like uh, the B, the sound B, and the sound E to describe a letter that we call B, right? <laughs> and then uh, you have uh, the letter like uh, N. And then uh, in English, you call it N. N. So technically, you're using two sounds, like uh, E and um, a and n to describe the sound n. That's how we teach our children. The sound a. A normally is the sound that should make is a. The letter should make the sound a. But somehow we use, you know, the concept of a to describe that sound. Because we don't teach our children English to say a, b, you know, ah, but we don't say that. We tell them to say A, B, right? So let's say a child that's so intelligent that's not conditioned yet, that has their brain that has not been conditioned yet, 
let's say that you write the word banana, I mean, banana on the board. And you ask the child, can you read this for me after learning the letter? Can you read this for me? If that child, which uh, that child having like a brain that's so fresh, unconditioned brain, and then everything that child resonates with nature, with whatever makes sense, you know, and whatever is logical, that child will really be a nanny. But you're not going to let him say that. You're not going to let your child say that. You're going to make no, it's red banana. But it doesn't make sense because you tell me this is this, this is this, this is this. That's when you put them together, this is what they make. So we call that the contemporary agreements. And that's the language that we're speaking. That's the language that is leading the world. A language that's like a contemporary agreement, you know, a language that does not have anything to do with nature, a language that does not have anything to do with who we are. So you cannot speak a tongue. You cannot be uttering things out of your mouth that your heart ordered your brain to order the tongue, you know, to say when it doesn't even have anything that it looks like in nature. It doesn't even manifest the nature, represent nature that you live in. So when you take the letter A, the way we even write it, nothing in nature really looks like it. Nature doesn't make things that look like that. When you take letter B, nature doesn't make things that look like that. All of the letters that we have, you look at them. We even have uh, the letter W. When you really write, write W, that letter, you know, the way we write it, that's, that's almost like W-V. But we teach, we are taught to read it as W. When it's supposed to be like W-V, that uh, is we use to make that letter, you know. So all of that is uh, what's causing the mental degeneration of, uh, you know, our societies nowadays. Because we say things that don't even exist in nature. We see things different way. We don't even see nature anymore. We see things different way. And uh, in Africa, uh, in our indigenous cult, uh, places, we speak the sounds. We don't have letters, but we have sounds. And uh, most of the languages that you know I speak have at least 300, 400 sounds that we make. And then uh, about 300 ideograms. So we speak based on sonograms and ideograms. And uh, all of those languages that we speak, I can only talk about, you know, speak about Africa. All of the languages that we speak in our, you know, continents, in our villages, in our continent, are languages that have their roots directly connected to the language that the ancient Egyptian were speaking. I'm not talking about the Arabs in uh, Egypt now, that they speak Arabs. But the language that the original ancient Egyptian speak before the Arab invasion of that land is uh, called the Medu. Medu, which means the speech. But Medu, Netter, which means the divine speech, which or the sacred speech, which 
when you look at those characters and the sound and the representation, everything is nature represented. Our R, our concept of R is a bird, ego. Our concept of M, where you say M is a, the, uh, what call that bird again? Uh, the bird that has a big eyes. How? Oh. So you will see that most of the characters and most of the sound that are preserved, preserved, you know, are really like uh, nature. So we speak in nature. Right? So that also travel all the way to the traditional languages that we speak today. Like my language that I speak, uh, Tim or Gurmanche, they have at least 40% or all the way 60% of their concepts that are directly connected to the Narvali language that was, uh, that was speak, spoken. The reason why even like, uh, uh, the Greeks call it hieroglyphs. The Greek called that language hieroglyphs, meaning like the sacred writing. Hieroglyphs, the sacred writing. So that's even why they call it that way. When they came to study, they saw that that writing, uh, that language is about things that are very sacred. And then there's no way for you to curse in that language. There's no way for you to say, even for you to even be planning to say wrong things, it's difficult for the brain. Wow. The brain gets challenged. Wow. So technically, you speak a language that does not give you the option of uh, saying evil, saying bad things. That's heavy. You see? What, what about in, in this ancient language? Um, are there words or, or concepts for ownership for a person to be able to say own land or own an no. ox? That's my thing. That's my that. No, you don't. Uh, even in the writing of uh, to say like my, you know, like if I want to say like, uh, you know, my, my hat that's in front of me here, I would say like, uh, you know, FF. And then that character is a human being. It's not me. Mm, wow, that's cool. You see, like the character of I is uh, the human being. Wow. You see, in the in the hieroglyphs in Egypt, for example, in, in the pyramids and what and whatnot. And I'm I know nothing about history, so bear with me if I don't get any of it right. But um, are those hieroglyphs? Uh, all or are most of them pre-Arabic? Uh, that's the very first language. <clears throat> Arabic, I think Arabs are still looking for the origin of their language. Oh, okay. You can question the Arabs. Do they know where their language is coming from? No, seriously. Like uh, the origin of their language, where is it coming from? Like when we want to speak about English, yeah, English origins of it's Latin. French, some of it's Latin, Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, and all of that. So you can trace certain languages like that. The Arab, the Arabic language is the one that cannot be traced yet because you, no one knows where that language is. Oh, interesting. From. What about Sanskrit? Sanskrit is a, a 
variation of uh, what we call the hieroglyphs. It's a variation. That's why it doesn't even uh, carry the name of, uh, you know, the glyphs, but more so like uh, the script. So script means what? Like Sanskrit. Script means that someone came, someone learned something, and then uh, tried to write it, develop it. But the glyph is like, uh, you know, writing itself. So meaning you write the book, I read the book, I can take that, whatever I read from your book, and then uh, re- make like a script of what I learned from your book. So there's a lot of languages that became, and they became from uh, their original language, which just like uh, nature, speaking nature. And they want to tell, teach people Egyptology is a discipline that is uh, created in, uh, you know, in a modern university, modern world universities that I don't like. And I'm sorry for the people who really follow the Egyptologists and then anthropologists and all of that. They just, you know, at the, you know, at the, they just doing the job of uh, what, you know, religion and science started. You know, that's what they just do. So, In case you didn't know it, 90,000 new chemicals have been introduced into public use since the 1970s. And guess how many of them have been tested for safety? You guessed it, very few, if any. Not only can these exposures make us sick, but they can also activate the immune system inappropriately and trigger inflammation. And this can lead to a grip of modern health issues, autoimmune conditions, allergies, weight gain, bloating, brain fog, sleep disturbances, depression, and anxiety. You get the picture, and it's not a pretty one. Well, one of the best offenses is a good defense, and our gut is basically the fortress of the human body. And this is where Arma Colostrum comes in. It's physician-developed and clinically backed, and it's the first smart superfood to target the modern root causes that threaten our health. It builds back the body's immune barriers, creating a tight seal that guards against inflammation and the everyday toxins, pollutants to which we're exposed. I've been using the Armra colostrum as part of my daily defense routine for about two years, and I gotta say, it's been incredibly helpful, especially for my gut health. And now we've worked out a special offer for the Lifestylist audience. To get 15% off your first order, go to tryarmra.com slash Luke. I've been using the unflavored Armor Colostrum, which is delicious in just about any drink I put it in, but they've also got a blood orange and vine watermelon flavor powdered too. So get yourself on some colostrum today at tryarmra.com slash Luke. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A dot com slash Luke. Well, it seems like there's uh, a lot of controversy around the temples, the pyramids, etc. In Egypt, there's a school of thought that many people hold that those structures are pre-Egyptian and that they've been commodified because of tourism and academia and such that the true origin and history and age of, of these uh, structures is, is not what we've been told to. 
And again, I don't know a lot about yeah. that, but yeah, I know, I know, I know a lot about it because I get those questions a lot. Yeah, and uh, people like talking about uh, is it Atlantis, Atlantis, Atlantis? Yeah, Atlantis, yeah. yeah they saying that Atlantis is uh, uh, older than uh, the civilization in Egypt. Atlantis, that concept itself. I mean, I, for us, we just we're not emotional in uh, our culture, in any African culture, you know, we don't move forward approaching things with emotions. We use the logic, the brain, right? Atlantis itself is a, a Greek word. That's a Greek word, Atlantis. It's a Greek word. But the Greeks were traveling to Egypt to learn. The Greeks are like the student of uh, Egyptians. That only should tell people that, okay, you just try to take the credit away from uh, a group of people, but you don't have uh, a way of doing it. I want to say something here on, in front of these cameras and then uh, challenge anyone and uh, say, gather your strength and keep, you know, have courage. It's more courage and buy your ticket and travel to Africa. It's not, Africa is not what they tell you. Travel to Africa, you will discover Africa. Travel to Africa and then I decide to, you know, be, that's why even most of the countries in Africa they will paint it in red and say that's terrorist activities, which you shouldn't go there. You shouldn't go there. That's the fear. That's ruling people with a fear. People live there. People live there. Your embassies are there. <laughs> you have military, you know, military bases over there. But they tell the citizen not to go, you know, because of, you know, whatever you discover and all of that. <laughs> But, Probably not any more dangerous than Chicago or Chicago, San Francisco. You know, or San Francisco <laughs> anyway, you know. <laughs> so the logic is that Atlantis is a Greek word. And then uh, if we consider it to be a Greek word, then uh, the Greeks were just people who were coming to study under the Egyptian priesthood and temple, mystery schools and all of that. There's a story I'm going to tell you. I know you, you laugh and people will laugh about that story. But that story is at the foundation of what you call modern society. That story is uh, the foundation of uh, what you call modern world. At some point in time, people were traveling to Kemet, what we call Kemet, Egypt, ancient Egypt, to go and then study philosophy, astrology, astronomy, mathematics, physics, chemistry, medicine. You know, all of that. People were traveling in Egypt for that. Because at that moment, that's where the awareness is almost at the day today how people want to travel to Dubai. Because Dubai is rising now, you know, they rise up. So everybody wants to go see there, everybody wants to go buy things there, or China. Everybody wants to go buy things there because it's cheap and all of that. So for that time, you know, in human history, it, that area, Nile Valley, was the area where awareness was like valued, you know, all of that. Everything was like, you want to evolve, you have to travel there, right? 
and uh, after many generations of people traveling, then rivalry and jealousy and envy start coming. And uh, like Kiron, those people, especially the Roman, and not the Roman, the Greeks, ask, you know, if there was a way for them to stop traveling to Africa, now that they are, you know, they studied, they apprenticed, they became, you know, so well-known in whatever they were coming to learn. Is there a way for them to stop coming in Africa every year to, you know, honor the temples and then they can just build their own temples on their lands? And uh, the priest said, but uh, why will you build a temple on your lands? And then uh, those temples already exist here that built you and all of that show some integrity and then some, you know, dignity towards the powers that, you know, help you elevate. They're like, well, because they want to honor the their temples and stop traveling here because now they feel like they can become themselves. Just like how everybody's doing today too. Everybody go and take and come and then once you use it to be like, yeah, now I have it too, you know. So the priests in the temples then asked them, so what God will you have in your temples there when you build that? They will say, you know, we will have this God. But isn't that God that we have here? We will have, what will your God do? Uh, we will have a God for sun. We will have a God of uh, war, a God of, uh, you know, famine, a God of rain. Then the priests in uh, Egypt were like, well, we have all of those gods here. That's the temples. Those gods already have temples here where every, the whole world is coming to worship. Because the goal was like uh, the unification of humanity. So you shouldn't have your own temple somewhere. You're supposed to have, you know, one authority, which is the Pharaoh, the temple that the Pharaoh recognized, one authority under which everybody comes to learn, you know, which makes, you know, the whole world discipline. And every year, the whole world will converge towards one location. What people are doing today, people are going to Mecca every year to go on Arch. People are going to uh, Vatican on a pilgrimage every year, Mecca on a pilgrimage every year, people do that, right? So that's what was really the goal. Every year, everybody has to go on a pilgrimage to the uh, Nile Valley and then take advantage to honor all of those powers in nature that, that you know, uh, those people were able to connect with and then establish temples for. They said, no, they want their own temples. Then they said, okay, uh, since all of the things you try to create, you know, then they try to create already have a, a temple over here. Is there something that does not have a temple yet? And the priest in uh, Kemet told them, well, everything has a temple already. Everything has a temple. All of the temples are already occupied. There's nothing in the universe that you can look at and think it doesn't have a temple. Everything has a temple already occupied. And that's when they asked the priest, is there a temple for nothing? He's like, what do you mean? Come again? 
is that do you all have a temple of nothing? <laughs> like, nah, we don't even have that concept. It's like, okay, then we will create our temples and then our temples will be a temple of, a temple will be temples of nothing. And the priest are like, just for curiosity, what will your temple, the God, who will be the God of your temple? Said so the God of nothing. Like, okay. Uh, another curiosity. What will your God do? What will be the function of your God? It will be a God that allow you to do anything you want to do. And everything you want to do, anything you want to be, everything you want to be. Then uh, the no principle, meaning a temple that worship a God who is uh, a God of uh, no principle. A God of uh, freedom. The concept of freedom. And uh, yeah, that's what, you know, build the society. And they took that concept. In their mythology, you can see that. You can see in the mythology how the mother and the children would team up to kill the father. And all of that. What do you see in the modern society? So, like that. So, when the modern society travel around the world and, you know, prone, like, you know, freedom, democracy, freedom, democracy is just like, uh, you know, fake, you know, it's like they know what they're doing. No one is free over here. And then what does really freedom mean? Freedom means you live in a life, a life with that principle, a life with that discipline. And that's why the concept of laws have to be, you know, put in place. You have to create laws. You know, so meaning like uh, through the Greeks, the whole modern society get to, or Western society get to stand on uh, on the rock that is uh, against principle, but for law. Because normally principle is something that comes from divine. Principle is like something that's divine, that came from the divine. And then the law is something that's made by man. So then, uh, because we're worshiping a God, a man-made God, and then uh, every law, we have, everything we have to stand by will have to be made by men too. But how do you call, in, in good English, how do you call a God that is made by a man? Uh, counterfeit. That's a demon. Oh, de- <laughs> even worse. <laughs> well, that's I, a like, demon. I like where you're going here because lately I've been contemplating... How do I articulate this in a way that's concise? Looking at the geopolitical landscape, right? I mean, in our country in the past few years, it's it's just, it's a clown show. I mean, it's literally a circus, right? It's a circus, right? And so we're all under the assumption that if our society is off track, that we have the freedom, in, in quotes, to elect someone different that's going to make things different, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we've, we're outsourcing our culture to people that we hold the false conception 
of being people that have some inherent God-given right to rule over other people. Yep. And so the older I get and hopefully more wise I get, it seems that the oh, yeah. error is that we have a superstition as a people that certain special people are bestowed with the right to impose their will over other people. And we believe that we have a choice, a.k.a. freedom, because we can pick one ruler over another ruler, even though I don't really think we have much choice in who rules. But I'm of this concept that no human being has the inherent right to rule over any other human being. And to your point, these laws, these demonic laws that, that are made of the laws of man and not the principles of God or spirit keeps us sort of spinning in this perpetual fantasy that somehow we can affect change by picking a different false law, right? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's like this, this illusion of choice yeah. wherein if we're following the principles of God, there is no law higher than that law. No. So we don't need the people. We don't need the government. No. But we've been so conditioned to think that we need government. Yeah. And that's how they trick us. Like, right? That's how we give up our power and, and we allow them to travel around the world and extinguish the wisdom of all the indigenous all the cultures, people. all the medicines, Thank all you. of the connection to Thank nature, you. all these yep. ancient teachings. Mm -hmm that are being put out and they're the fires, the embers that keep yep, yep. the human civilization yep. moving forward. Yes. Because, it seems uh, that the root, uh, much of the root of that is our superstition in yep. believing that someone needs to save us or rule over us and not, not power over that. us. Not even that. It's just uh, this system that is uh, this system that has established the modern or the Western way of doing things is a system that's scared of competition. And it does not like another system to exist. And the only way that system can exist freely and no worry and feel like it's safe is by extinguishing any other system that existed before it. Yes. So let me shock you a little bit. Please. Okay. Uh, the reason why you and I cannot run for the White House, to be in the White House, is because you and I, we are not the descendant of the founding fathers of America. If you and I were somehow direct or distant descendants of those who signed the American Constitution, the founding fathers who signed the American Constitution, yeah, maybe one day you and I can dream or we can dream that our children can run. So technically, the reason why every four years we change a person in the White House or every eight years, someone has to be changed. But when you look, because when you look at all of them, they all are descendants, either direct or indirect descendants of those that are called the, fund, the funding fathers. So technically, they are being chosen to keep safe the legacy of uh, their ancestors. Yeah. So if my yeah. ancestor was brought in America as a slave, that's what I'm going to be. 
there's no way I'm going to be somewhere else. If my ancestor run from Italy and then come and live here and then has to struggle to establish, hey, that's what he's going to keep doing. If my ancestor run from Ireland to come and then do that, that's what he's going to be doing. He will never get closer to that now. Is there like any shortcuts to get through that? Yes, then you have to sell something. You have to exchange. You have to sell something. You have to sell your soul, your dignity, your integrity. You have to sell something for you to get, uh, you know, away. So that's why, uh, you know, being in this work and then kind of a spiritual and cultural revolutional activist that I can say that, you know, I like saying that, that I am. I just don't trust any human being that feels like uh, they are in position to make the law, you know. Word. <laughs> yeah, I just don't trust that. Me either, because it, yeah. in your heart, in your gut, if you just think about it, yeah. what gives the right, again, I'm going to say the same thing, what gives the right for one human being to exert their will over another human being because they're born to a bloodline, because their founding fathers were this or that? Yep. Yep. It just goes against my nature. In to. in my heart, I know that that's not right. It's not right. It's not. And yet, yeah, we he, and yet, a... here we are in yeah. this matrix that we call civilization that's been superimposed upon ancient civilizations that were already here doing just fine. <laughs> I mean, not that there weren't always problems with humanity and warring tribes and whatever, right? But now you you actually can't leave the system, no. really. I mean, try to go live in the woods and be left alone. You can't do it. There's no way you can do You it. have to have a birth certificate, a passport, a social security number. You really can't exist outside of the system unless, I don't know, maybe there are remote tribes in the Amazon or elsewhere that are just born of their mother and they yeah. live on the land and are left uninterrupted. But that that group of people is yep. is minute, right? Yeah. And and very rare. You're just a product, uh, no, a property of uh, the one. You know, people thought that slavery is finished. Now slavery is not just on uh, black people. Everybody's slave now too. Few free families. range for few families free range slavery right i can drive down the road but i always say try to not pay taxes no, now you see what let me know how free you are and that's not to diminish happens. you know actual slavery obviously but there are degrees of slavery exactly. right exactly there's degrees where you're in a forced labor camp Fist and you labor. can't leave the property yep. but there are there's a spectrum of degrees and we all on the planet, for the most part, experience yeah. some degree exactly. of that, right? Exactly. Yeah, you can be a slave and wearing tie, no problem. Wearing a suit. <laughs> you just, uh, I would argue that that you're you're volunteering yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, I've tried wearing be, a tie a couple of times. I thought I don't feel right. <laughs> this is not. Just wearing something around you, like your where you breathe, man. I mean, it's, a, it's a new symbol. That's it. People just don't look at realities, you know, because, you know, reality is, uh, you know, built for people to look at, but not the reality itself. You know, like already that is, a, I mean, in my place, 
sorry to say that in my place, you know, goats and cows and rams are the one that carries ropes around their necks. That we put ropes on the necks and all of that. But the working class or the politician is aware of the fact that they are in the system where they cannot get out of. It's like you and I have something that we can do in life. Do you think a good politician knows how to do something in life if he's not talking? And then acting. Acting. Yeah. So, you know, it's just that, <laughs> you know, what it is. And uh, I knew we were going to have fun. I knew we were going to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I would be remiss if we didn't cover this. I know we've been going for a while. So thank you for your generosity of time. No when I'm interested in someone, I, I could go forever. No I'm interested, you're you an know. interesting dude. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Going back to the Nile Valley. And again, I've never been terribly interested in Egypt or the pyramids yeah. or anything. It's starting to come into my awareness because many of our friends here go there often. Well, and, yeah. you know, I hear some pretty impressive stories. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the things that I find interesting, and you, you alluded to this earlier, is are these structures that we can't explain through modern science, technology, mathematics, and so on, that seem to pop up on the planet in different places with cultures that were supposedly not in touch with one another mm-hmm. that all exist on very specific ley lines on the planet. Correct. So that gets my interest because when I'm being lied to, it instigates a, a yearning and curiosity for the truth. Well, if yeah. this is not true, then what is, right? And one thing I find interesting about the Nile Valley and the, the situation of the temples and pyramids there is if you look at that river, you can look at it as a spine <laughs> with the chakra systems, and that shit lines up. Yep. You know, yep. and it's yep. like we, you were talking about uh, yesterday. Um, you know, the <laughs> macrocosm and the microcosm yeah. as below, so above, so and this above. kind of thing, right? Yeah. What do you? I don't know. What's your perspective or the Dogon perspective on these energy centers and their placement and? If the people that were building them were in some kind of communication physically or telepathically? Uh, magnetically, yes. Spiritually, yes. And, uh, you know, when we want to use the telepathic, that's just like, uh, you know, leading people to think that you can just sit and think about something, it will manifest, right? But it's not the culture that built those pyramids and that built those rocks and, you know, all of that. It's a culture that uh, is a culture of uh, reality and then pure thinking. Pure thinking. That's what built those cultures. And uh, the those structures, uh, in my language, we will call them, you know, jinglings. You know, kind of, uh, they're like a gigantic jinglings, meaning... Uh, kind of portals. Okay. What's a jingli? A jingli is a, a, a place that has a, a concentrated of energies that human identify. And then uh, through that, the human then will set it. There's a technology that allows us to set, you know, that thing in the way that you tell the, other realities, invisible realities that from now on between you and I, this is the border 
And this is where we meet to exchange. Almost like uh, creating some sort of uh, embassy where, you know, you meet and then exchange and all of that. Between the seen and unseen and the seen realms. And unseen okay. realms okay. You know. So the, the jingle is almost like the border between the two, the material and the non-material world. That's the border. Got it. You know, and then, uh, the spiritual, the physical manifestation of it can be from, uh, four rocks, small rocks like this on, in your space, in your, you know, very spiritual space, or can be even like the big structures that can be constructed, you know. So, one thing you have to notice that like in uh, the modern society is when the, a monument is built, a monument is built on uh, a concentrated energy. Okay, that's why when they build the monuments, it's closed because there's gonna be like uh, you know stuff to be done before that monument is placed there. So they close it to the point where you don't see what's being built. It's only when it's finished that they came and then they unwrap it, so you can see. They were woke up, like we achieved something, you know. So at that moment, that's what it was too. So though, remember I was saying the Pharaoh will have to, his job is like the unification of humanity on every level, not just uh, physically, spiritually, intellectually, magnetically, energetically, and all of that. Everything has to be unified because that's what will allow the other celestial body to feel like or realities or existences to feel like uh, you know, we are not a danger to them and then to feel like they can, you know, interact with us. We can exchange and do things. You so know. it's like a, a neutral meeting ground. Meeting ground. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, then uh, all of the things that were built are like on ley lines, you know, Stonehenge, those in, uh, you know, South America, those in China, those in uh, Australia and all of those, even like, you know, in, uh, in the Pacific and all of the, all of those things are like, uh, you know, centered. And then their communication goes from those, you know, uh, other places all the way to the Nile Valley. And then, uh, one specific thing about Nile Valley is that that's the only river that you will see that will flow from south to north. And then that's the only river you will see that in its flow, it starts from a, a body of water you know, Lake Victoria, and then travel through the mountains, forests, through the desert to go and then, uh, you know, go into another body of water, the Mediterranean Sea. That's the only river you see that. So the technology is pure. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's not, we shouldn't, I don't want to lead people to think like it's something that is like, you know, so you have to be imagined. It's not an imagination. It's a reality, pure fact that ancestors have to pinpoint, you know, to be able to do that. So even our concept of time, when we're talking about the calendar, our concept of time isn't was based on that too. But that even is something that allow, you know, time to be very well verified by making sure the space was verified as well. And then uh, that's how they did. And then uh, we created the calendar. We call it the sidereal calendar, you know, calendar based on the series star, all of that. And then it has its cycle, has its spiritual thing. It allows you to practice your spirituality, tell you 
the period you were born in and what power were you born in, what are the forbiddings and all of that, things you should eat, things you shouldn't eat, things you should you shouldn't kill and all of that. It has all of that. They tell you when to worship your ancestors, when to worship the divine powers. It gives you all of that. Because there are some days where, you know, even the divine powers and all of that don't respond. You know, there's some days, you know, they don't respond. So those days, we call those days the days of rest. So those days are the days that normally everybody will take time to clean their space, clean the temple, clean their shrine, reorganize everything and all of that, you know. So we have all of that that exists in, uh, in that calendar. And then we have the app as well. People can look at it, like Kemeric. And the app, uh, is that what you said? Yeah. We have oh, an cool. App. Yeah. Is that, is that on your website or it's something? It's on the website. Oh, for yeah, real? No, oh, so, cool. Yeah. We'll, put that, we'll put that in the show notes. And I okay. forgot to mention the show notes, you guys listening. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be lukestory.com slash Dogon. D-O-G-O-N. Lukestory.com slash Dogon. Yeah. With the pyramids and, and other ancient sacred structures i mean the the golden question here is how did they do it you know and it it seems to me you know a lot of yeah. people think that there were uh, advanced alien you know ets and stuff <laughs> to me and you know and i i don't know right and i don't know yeah. that much about this i'm just a guy i watch a few youtube videos like mm-hmm. i'm i'm an idiot okay but it seems to me that it's very likely that these ancient civilizations had an understanding of physics that that have been lost that we don't understand. Some kind of use of electromagnetism, using you know the forces of nature and energy in a way that would seem magical to us now because yeah. we've lost so much of our intelligence. Yeah. Do do you think that it's something like that? It's not lost. Okay. If I have to answer that question, <laughs> it's, not, it's I, only lost to me and, other, yeah, and a lot of I, other I, people. I will, I will answer that it's not lost because, uh, how do you call it? Uh, it's uh, things that have been preserved and hidden. Okay. You know, uh, imagine those powers have to be in the hand of uh, the modern society. All oh, right. You know, those. Uh, knowledge you know just with the small archives that they were able to you know steal you know in the in the temples digging the graves and stealing the temples and the valley and all of that you saw what they they built you saw what they did what they do so imagine they were able to have access to you know those powers we still have pyramids in uh, in the desert that have been you know, dug up now. They dug it, they're digging out and they're taking archives as well in the desert. They see pyramids. They're not just those that are in our valley because when the migration happened, it happened in settlements. You know, from there all the way to Sudan, Sudan. You know, that's why even now the Egyptologists are breeding the confusion that there's a difference between ancient Egypt and then uh, Nubia. But they don't understand that it's like, uh, you know, settlements. During the migration, before the temples and the civilization start kind of falling over there, then, uh, you know, people start settling, you know, moving, migrating, and then settling as they move. And then to my, when we speak about the concept of migration, people don't understand what that means. That means that you're moving with all of your chickens, goats, human, men, children, 
women, pregnant women, elders, everything you moving with all of those. And then on top of that, all of the spiritual acquisitions and spiritual things that you already acquired and everything, you move with all of that. So you can only, uh, you know, continue working for so long because you have to stop at some point and restart, you know, and then that's what they did. They will start and the generation was be in one settlement and then they will continue. They will be like, okay, now this new generation will continue. And that's why you will see like in our, in the migration from uh, as the Dogon, we were like from, where, uh, from east to west, you know, where like, you know, it was, uh, you know, and the way we try to realign ourselves, it's easy for us. We just know the direction to take and the direction will be like from uh, west, we go east. And when we go east, we know all of where all of the settlements are because we the language will still remain there and the practices will be there. And then we have the concept of the norms. So we still have the norms. And when we see the norms, it tells us already who we, where we are and then how we should be conducting ourselves and all of that in that domain and all of that. So yeah, those things still exist. They haven't been, you know, lost. It's just uh, preserved. And then, uh, fallen in the hand of the modern society, modern society would decide to kill. Yeah. Like so giving a child a weapon. A weapon. You know. All right. La- last question for you. Yeah. Uh, yesterday during the proceedings of the ceremony, we're working with all these different herbal concoctions, teas and eggs and cola nuts. And at one point we uh, had this brain cleansing snuff that yeah. I would, Closely resembled the experience, resembled the experience of hape, right? Yeah. Didn't make me nauseous though, but like, woof, really yeah. lit the brain up. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the Dogon culture or in your experience, is there ever a place for any psychoactive plants, you know, iboga or kana or any of the kind of what's considered plant medicines now? Is that part of y'all's world at all? Yeah. Uh, they, you know, once I have, to, let's talk about iboga. Right? Iboga is a plant that comes from uh, the people in uh, in the forest. Okay. And uh, we are the people from the savannah. Right. And then uh, for us, you know, we have different ways of approaching existence and then the hiding, you know, part of existence. And then, uh, those ways don't necessarily involve the psychedelics or the alteration of human mind because those, you know, uh, those practices that we use are purely hard work where like we give you the technique. It's like a Shaolin temple. You don't go to Shaolin temple and they give you psychedelics to know how to do your... (laughs) (laughs) and all of that. They just teach you the technique and they get you the discipline. They get you to work hard, you know. For something like that, you know, people like doing yoga. People will put all kind of money, all kind of uh, time, you know, into practicing yoga, you know. But when it comes to practicing spirituality and investigating the non-material world, people will just take the shortcuts and then take the, you know, the plant medicine to do that. Now, as the dog one, even if we do have it, I would never, never expose it because the exposure, the exposition of it is uh, what now is leading all of the Amazon and all of those, you know, other cultures 
you know, to be kind of invaded and then uh, corrupted and then being destroyed and all of that, you know. For us, you know, gold, we expose our gold and then we dying for that, you know. So now let's talk about medicine. No, and then psychedelics is becoming like a scientific, you know, they're taking it. They, it's like a modern science again. Modern society is gaining. It's taken from indigenous people, some techniques or some knowledge to kind of make it their property. And then all of that, which is like another way of uh, usurping, you know, something, using something that is not yours without even recognition or saying thank you, without even finding a way to, you know, give back to the people and all of that, right? So uh, when you look at uh, where Iboga is coming from, it's around, you know, Gabon, Cameroon, Gabon, some part of Cameroon, and uh, those who know the geography, African geography, and then Congo and all of that. So when you bring the two, you know, our lands together and then try to kind of take the sea out of the picture and then you put them together with uh, South America, you will see that's a continuation. They are the same, you know, thing and all of that. So those uh, people will need to really depend on uh, those things to be able to evolve. It's too wet. It's too wet, you know. But for us in our, you know, temples or where we're from in our villages, our lands, we just make you work. We just make you work, you work, you work, you do things. And then, uh, you know, it will start happening. Well, I can tell you uh, yesterday when you started playing your drum yeah. and I didn't have any kind of substances or anything other than the herbal cleansing teas yeah. that you guys served, which weren't psychoactive or anything. Yeah. Dude, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, know. I was, it wasn't like I was having hallucinations or no. something like that. But what happened for me was I've only ha had this happen a couple other times when I was working with plant medicines. Mm -hmm. So that's what was very interesting, you know, yeah. very sober. And I didn't have to even work that hard. I just sat and listened, right? And then adjust the beat. But man, I started having this energy move in my body. And I know that energy. And I know. I'm not doing it, and I know I also no, can't stop it. I trust you. I believe you. And, and uh, I knew that it was intentional, too. It was beautiful. For me to be beaten and do that, you can see how dedicated I was as well. Yeah, it's yeah. Like it was intentional. I wanted to make a point where, like, even vibration, the beats and its vibration, the sound, the beats vibration, can get you to visit the invisible. Well, you did. Um, I mean, I was crying and shit, yeah. and it went on for like two hours. Yeah, it wasn't just like, oh, I felt a funny feeling. I mean, I just <laughs> surrendered to it and rolled with it because I knew that it was good, you yeah. know. Uh, but it was it was very powerful. So yeah, when so. you come to my place, you'll be you'll be amazed. You come to our place, you'll be amazed because few techniques and technologies that we have, all from nature. You said it, egg. Kula nuts, flowers, you know, thing like that, drum, and then a summer you get people. You can get your ancestral spirit activated in you, just drumming. You can get your past life, you know, play to you, just drumming, without any effects of uh, any sort of uh, you know stimulant or anything like that. But the music. 
the beats, the sounds will be the stimulant that yeah. will resonate yeah. from your feet all the way to your crown yeah. and get you there. Yeah, well, I can't wait to do more of it. Uh, before we close, where where can people find you? We'll put in the show notes again at lukestory.com slash Dogon, D-O-G-O-N. Yeah. I know you guys have your uh, African herbs and stuff herbs, I've been yes. taking and anything you want to, you know, send people to. That Yeah, uh, well, we, uh, my father started, you know, an organization when he came because it's modern society, you have to, uh, aligned by the law. You have to, you know, abide by the law and then uh, do your activities and all of that. So he started uh, a non-profit, you know, uh, called the Earth Center of Manu Inc. And it's a non-profit that kind of, you know, does great work. I've been for 25 years now, I've been doing a great work for our people. Even now that our people are, you know, misplaced or maybe have to leave their lands and all of that. You know, that's the nonprofit that has been taking care of those people and helping them and, you know, giving them homes and all of that. So that, you know, is actually a cultural, you know, uh, institution where most of the Dogon mission, you know, when it comes to everything that we share in the history, philosophy, spirituality, initiation, rite of passage, all of these things that we share in. And that's where, you know, we do those, you know, uh, activities and all of that. That's the organization that's in charge of that. And, uh, a few years ago, we started the, another nonprofit. You know, we call it Ancasa Natural Healing. You know, Ancasa Natural Healing is, uh, the nonprofit that we started that actually comes to complete the job that the other nonprofit, uh, the Earth Center is doing and complete the job in the way that, uh, it's good to have the knowledge. It's good to sit and listen to the problems. It's good to sit and listen to the good prophecies and good messages and all of that. But it's better when you have the practicality of it, when you have a way of solving those problems, when you have a way of dealing with it practically, you know, with the thing. So Ankasa Natural Healing, you know, comes to, you know, open that gates and then allow the human being, you know, to, you know, deal with, uh, you know, practically deal with the spiritual, their spirituality, deal with their, you know, energies, deal with their physical body and all of that. So any, you know, elements, any, uh, spiritual blockages and any, you know, energetic blockages that human goes through. So Ankasa is, uh, has like a network of, uh, you know, Dogon priesthood. You know, Dogon eldership and priesthood and Dogon healers. Those people have like long, long line of uh, healing in their DNAs and their, you know, families and lineage and all of that. Or those who have that kind of priesthood also in their lineage. So it's like a network, a very big network, you know, of uh, priests and all of that all around who now kind of, you know, uh, at, uh, you know, the service of uh, anyone in the modern society or even in uh, those indigenous societies where we are in need of, uh, you know, of those services and those help and all of that. And uh, we, Ankasa and the Earth Center has been, uh, I've been working a lot to rebuild all of the temples that have been fallen, you know, rebuild all of the original temple, not just, you know, uh, 
because people don't understand the difference between a shrine and a temple. And temple, you know, a shrine is just like a space where you do your thing, but a temple is like a many shrines coming together. So many lineages, you know, come together. Where everybody bringing their piece of uh, gift in nature and put it together for the service of uh, you know the people. So yeah, we've been building the temples and then buying you know back the lands that you know the indigenous people have been you know taken away from. They've been you know ripped off. We've been buying those back and you know saving the natural forces, especially natural forces that exist. That's what we save. Cool. Yeah, so they, people, if you want to look us, you can look uh, just like maybe Naba, Naba La Musa on the internet, you know, and you'll find us or go to, you know, www.theearthcenter.org or Ankasa, uh, org. And you see everything we do. Awesome. We're going to put it all in there. Well, man, thank you so much for coming to Austin, much. Texas. Thank you. Thank it's you. It's been an incredible couple days with you. I'm so glad we got thank the you time for, to do this. Thank you for the hospitality. Thank you.